This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Madame Gordenko's Dance Academy. Madame Gordenko's Dance Academy. Together, we will revolutionize dance. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1992's Dance Macabre and 2016's Split. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Slash cards. Slash cards. Hit me with your best shot. John Carpenter has suggested that the mask Michael Myers wears in Halloween from 1978 may have been inspired by a similar mask from what 1960 French film? 1960 French film? Mm -hmm. Should I know this answer? We're going to do it in a couple weeks. I don't... You keep track of the schedule. I don't keep track of the schedule. That's not fair. <laughs> um, I don't know. What is it? Little tease. Eyes without a face. Uh, okay. I can picture it in my head right now. Everyone knows the story of where that mask came from, right? Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. They just... Painted it all white and uh, cut out the eyes a little bit further and must up the hair. And there you go. You have the boogeyman or the shape, as he's actually called. Yes. Um, all right. Kelsey. Yes. Horror can show up in unexpected places, like the Tunnel of Helping Hands from this 1986 fantasy film. Wow. Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Kelsey, why did I pick that question? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. She fucking loves that movie. <laughs> if you have any cool labyrinth shit, send it our way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now on to 1992's Dance Macabre. Written and directed by Graydon Clark, starring Robert Englund, Michelle Zeitland, and Mariana Moen. Kelsey, what's the premise of Dance Macabre? A man helps run a amazing dance academy in Russia, and he has just opened it up to people all over the world, and he develops an obsession with one of the dancers. This movie was previously only available on DVD. It just came out on Blu-ray at the beginning of this year. It is otherwise completely unavailable, I assume, through legal means. I got us this movie. It was just online. I Googled it, and somebody was hosting it for free, and I imagine that was incredibly illegal. (laughs) But it's a very difficult movie to find. It is. That being said, if somebody does get their hands on it or they pay money for the physical copy... Should they watch it? I enjoyed it. So did I. I would recommend it. I am sad to know that it went straight to video. Yeah. I thought it was a lot better than 
most movies that go straight to video. <laughs> right. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. If they don't already own it, should they buy it? It's a tougher question. I wouldn't mind owning it. Yeah. But I would understand if someone was pissed that they paid for it. Right. <laughs> so don't don't buy it on our account. How about that? <laughs> if you like Robert Englund, he's famous for playing Freddy. Freddy Krueger, yeah. If you like him and you're interested in lesser known horror movies, go for it. All right. That are not bad at all. So go ahead and watch the movie or don't. And when we get back, we'll discuss 1992's Dance Macabre. I'd like to welcome you to Madame Gordenko's Academy of Dance. Someone must have lives to rob. Which of you wants to be a great dancer? Someone loves to dance macabre. Who is willing to pay the price for greatness? The ballerinas are young, beautiful, and afraid. Next. They dream of glory. Tomorrow. The Petersburg. They dream of death. going on here? Someone needs a partner to dance macabre. Kelsey, what happens in Dance Macabre? Uh, so. <laughs> we should probably get this right out right out of the way. Because it's very clear, very, very, very clear, very, very quickly. <laughs> so the whole movie starts. I'll, I'll get through this bit really quickly. This Guy, Robert Englund's character, who's this ballet instructor. Choreographer. Choreographer. He is in a relationship with one of the dancers. Svetlana. And Svetlana. And she is going to be moving home. And he doesn't like it and he gets really upset. And he's driving her away from her final performance. He's super drunk. in uh, On a motorcycle. And they end up getting into an accident. Cut to many years later. And... He is a choreographer at this famous Russian ballet school, along with Olga, who is one of their teachers, and Svetlana, who actually runs the place. She's the madame. She's the madame. So <laughs> if we ever refer to madame, that's who we're talking about, Svetlana. Okay, so here's the twist that's incredibly obvious from the very beginning. Robert Englund is the choreographer and he's Svetlana. He wasn't always, but she died in that motorcycle accident, and his personality split, and now he is both people. It's difficult to tell if they wanted to keep it as a surprise or not. Right? It's really hard to tell, because if they were, they did not do a good job. No. I, f I feel like they could have been completely open with this fact, and the movie would still have a lot of mystery, and... Like, knowing, knowing that from the very beginning, like, like, I was like, oh, that's really obvious. And Kelsey's like, oh, dang it. I was hoping you wouldn't notice. And no, it's incredibly obvious. Well, when we first see him dressed as her, it is kind of a far away shot. So I was sitting there hoping that Chris wouldn't figure it out. And he said it right away. So I assume that 
everyone would have known if Chris right. could tell right away. So I feel like either they're an idiot and they thought they could get away with it or they didn't give a fuck if you right. figured it out or not. But there's still a whodunit element to the movie. Yes. And I feel like like knowing that information ahead of time made it much more interesting, the interplay of relationships, when he changed personalities, when one was there and the other wasn't, the excuses for why they were never together. I feel like they could have leaned into that a little bit harder if they were more open and honest with the audience and it would have been a lot more interesting it was still interesting even knowing that twist though yeah because that's really not the question the question is who is doing the murders right you don't know if it's robert england you don't know if it's the madame and you don't know if it's olga or it could even possibly be the reporter right because this is something that I actually wrote down. The first several murders before things really start ramping up, actually pretty much until the reveal. And even at the reveal, you're not even entirely sure what's going on. <laughs> um, but all the way up to that point, every time one of these dancers is killed, Svetlana, the madame, uh, Robert Englund's character, Olga, and the reporter all do not have alibis. Mm-hmm. They're all in the area, mm-hmm. and we have no idea where any of them are when the murder takes place. Every single one of them. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, the whodunit element of this movie is really what you're there for. It's not, you're not here for the mystery of finding out that Svetlana is really Robert Englund. That's <laughs> not what it's about. Uh, although he does a very admirable job playing the role. I would say so. Because I only know Robert England as Freddy... I was pretty shocked. I, I thought that he maybe wasn't a good actor since that's all he is known for. But he was not bad in this movie. No, not at all. I liked him. I liked him a lot. So all that preface <laughs> <laughs> happening. What happens when we get to modern day? The madame, she is in a wheelchair, even though she can walk. She has a hard time of it. Actually, the first modern day shot we see is her trying to do a dance move. Like, she's standing, she's holding on the bar, and she kicks her leg up and everything, and then she falls. Right. So we know she can stand, just not very well. Yeah. And she also has this thing that I did not know was a real thing. Yeah, uh, so people that um, that get, uh, like, tracheotomy surgery, you know, like people that have throat cancer and stuff like that, they have those amplifiers that they hold to their throat to catch the vibrations, and just like that one Hunter character from South Park. <laughs> Hello, Mrs. Cartman. How are you today? Um, that's the best way. It's that most people know it from that. Yes. Um, but it's a real thing that people have, and it makes them sound all, like, electronic. Mm-hmm. And so she has that, and that's how he gets away with not using his voice. I realize that some of you prefer the rock and roll to the ballet. But not here. Not in my class. So he's saying, you know, welcome to the school. I'm really excited that now I can have dancers here that are not just Russian. And while he's giving this speech, there's a reporter in there taking pictures. And he turns to Olga and he's like, I thought we had taken care of this. And it's weird because I assume that the reporter is trying to figure out if he really is the madame. But that is never explained. No. Actually, I wrote that down. I wrote down, did they just never reveal why Alex, the reporter from the magazine, was investigating the place? They never did. They never did. I assume it's to find out 
if Robert Englund is also the madame. Right. But they never say it. Right. We don't know to the outside world what the story is. He may know that Svetlana is dead, but now Svetlana is here and he wants to figure out what's going on. He may not know that Svetlana is dead, but he's heard rumors and we just we never find out. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple opportunities where he's talking to our main character, whose name is Jessica. We should really quickly say that this was originally intended to be a sequel to... The Phantom of the Opera. Specifically the Phantom of the Opera that Robert Englund was in. Never seen it. Didn't even know it existed. If you're familiar with the story of the Phantom of the Opera, there are dozens of connections. Yeah. It's very much a Phantom of the Opera story. The main one being a mysterious killer who feels ownership over this art form location, in one case the opera, in the other case this ballet studio, feels an extreme connection to one of the performers and singles them out over all the others. Because he believes that she can bring his work to life. Right. In a way that no one else can. And meanwhile, people are being murdered <laughs> for getting in the way of that. Yes. And those are the, the like the big connections, but Kelsey will probably chime in with more connections as we go along. Uh, Phantom of the Opera is my favorite musical, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris has seen it multiple times because of me. He knows the music. (laughs) So that whole thing is done. They tell them to go to their rooms. And then Robert England is in his office and this man bursts in and he's like, my daughter is going to go to this school. And the guy's like, uh, no, enrollment is done. And he slams this big hunk of cash on his desk. And he's like, my daughter is going to... Uh, go to the school, and she is going to be picked to go to this amazing ballet place in Russia. A man is used to getting what he wants. And what I want is for Jessica to attend your academy, study under your madam, and to dance at the Petersburg Ballet Company. Because every year, one girl from the, the, the academy gets to go and audition there to be in their dance studio. Yeah. And... At first, Robert England is going to say no, but then he sees Jessica. And she looks exactly like Svetlana. But I looked it up. They are not the same actress. Yeah. But, which is stupid because you hardly get to see Svetlana. Right. You see her in that one and that one scene in the very beginning. And they have they a couple flash of flashbacks. Yeah. But. but you barely see what she actually looks like. Yeah. But so he sees her and it's very much Phantom falls in love with Christine and he's just like, yep, she's coming and she's definitely going to be my star. Yeah. Just because she looks like Svetlana. He doesn't even fucking know if she's a good dancer or not. (laughs) There's also this really amazing, bizarre, creepy relationship between Robert England and Olga. This is what I'm talking about when I say if they were just upfront about how how Anthony Robert England's character and Svetlana are the same person, it would they would have been able to pull out all this stuff with Olga and that would have been much more interesting. Like you see before the reveal several times where Olga's like, you know, Anthony will say I want to talk to Svetlana and Olga will say something like she's not feeling very good or she'll have a nervous look on her face. And we don't know why that is. But knowing that they're the same person you do and it makes it much more interesting. I told you 
the American girl had talent? Yes, of course, madame. You were right as always. Can Mr. Wagner to come here immediately? Um, I believe he's not available right now. Just to bring him here. <laughs> of course. So the reason I'm bringing it up now is because our main girl, Jessica, and her roommate, who's this French girl who is the one that convinces her to stay because she does not want to be there. She loves American current dancing. And so she's like, I don't want to be a ballerina. I want to dance the way I want to dance. And the French girl convinces her to stay. And so they're running around being girls and they stop in front of uh, Madame's room and they look through the keyhole and Olga is in there, and she is talking to both Robert Englund and Madame. Yeah. And this so cool. was the first time me and Chris are like, does she know? Like, what is going on here? Yeah, what is uh-huh. this relationship? Like I said, all we get to see is that Robert Englund is facing away from the door, so we can't see his face. And then we see Olga standing, uh, facing towards Robert Englund, and we hear both voices and so we're just supposed to assume that Madame is in there talking to the two of them. Right, yeah. Cut to them going to their first rehearsal. And in rehearsal, or in dance class, the Madame comes out and she immediately singles out Jessica. Right. Even though Jessica, like I said, doesn't want to be there and she kind of fucks up and it pisses her off a lot. Um, and so the French girl's like, I'll teach you, you know, like, we'll, we'll work together. You don't want to be embarrassed in front of the madame again. Mm-hmm. They're doing a lot of work together, and in walks Robert England, and he, like, so Jessica is blonde, and he's touching her hair, and he's just like, you know, if you want to be a famous dancer someday, you're going to have to be a brunette. Right, because no one has ever been accepted uh, into the the ballet russe as a blonde. But I think it's more so that he wants her to look more exactly. like Svetlana. Exactly. And it's super creepy, and she does not like it, and she's just like, I'm not going to change my hair color. And the French girl's like, that's a bunch of bullshit. Don't listen to that. We're going to work on your actual dancing skills. Uh, so they do, and then uh, the French girl's like, all right, I'm going to go and hit the, the hot tub, and Jessica's like, I'll meet you in there. And then we get the most ridiculous, dramatic dance, oh, a yes. la Flash Dance. A la Flash Dance. <laughs> this is 1992, <laughs> and it feels like it's dead in the 80s. Yes. Except for the music. Oh, my God. It's like is stripper music. The music in this, I, I wasn't talking about this particular scene. You said that the movie feels very 80s. It does, but the music in this movie is god-awful. The music is super 90s, and it's super bad. Uh, oh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. It's got the very, uh, that poppy sound. I don't know how to make it. It's like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do it. But uh, it's really bad. So while she's doing this dramatic flash dance dance, poor French girl gets murdered in the hot tub. And Kelsey had a lot of problems with this scene. I could tell. It's, it is not shot well. It is shot in such a way that there is no way on earth the French girl could not see the person coming after her. Right. And at first it's like a surprise, 
But then she like gets away and she gets into the middle. It's a big hot tub. It's meant for a lot of girls to use. So she's in the middle of it. And the way she's looking around the room, we know where the killer is. We're we're seeing it from his perspective. And fucking, (laughs) there is no way she didn't see him. Yeah. It it makes no sense and it really pissed me off. So when Jessica goes down there, eventually, Mm -hmm. the French girl's just gone. As far as Jessica knows, she was never down there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And who does she run into? The reporter. Alex. And this is the weirdest fucking shit. <laughs> he asks, he has like his hand in the in the in the uh oh my god. hot tub thing yeah. and she's outside of it and he's like you want to get wet with me? And she like doesn't answer and he's like do you like bubbles? <laughs> so do you want to get wet with me? And she just laughs. How's the water? Hi. What are you doing here? Warm, huh? You want to get wet with me? Who are you? Where's Claudine? Who's Claudine? Oh, do you work here or what? Do you like bubbles? You didn't answer my question. So, you don't want to get wet with me? That's cool. Hey, you, wait up! And then they immediately flirt, like fucking hardcore flirting and then she goes out with him are you kidding me this strange man who broke into your school and what asked if you want to get wet with him mm-hmm. and she's like totally into it now i don't like the reporter like i get why she thinks robert england is super creepy but i don't understand why she doesn't think the reporter is super creepy yeah. I would find both of them incredibly creepy, and I would not be interested in either of them. I get She doesn't that- I don't think that she thinks that Anthony, the Robert Englund's character, is like super creepy. I just think she's kind of uncomfortable around him. Right. And the audience is meant to think that he's uncomfortable, and the audience is meant to think the reporter is not, but I'm sorry. Yeah, no. He really is. And they end up pairing up for this movie. He's like her secret lover. But My problem is that a lot of times it feels like he's using her to get inside. Yeah. But it's never mentioned. It's never brought up. There are times when... He never actually uses her to get inside. Right. But he get like, okay, so... No, I'm, I'm saying I know that's obviously like the feeling that they were giving off. And it's like, oh, but then he actually fell in love with her. But, th- but he never actually uses her at all. Well, but so he makes odd faces. So like when she's like, okay, let's go out. She leaves first and he looks around like, damn, I needed to, I needed to get in there. I needed to look at stuff. Yeah. And so it's like, he only was flirting with her to make it seem like it's okay that I'm here. Yeah. Cause I wanted to flirt with you, even though I've never seen you before. You know, he had zero reason to be in there as far as she is concerned and she doesn't even think about that? Yeah. She doesn't wonder why the fuck this guy broke into her school? Yep. Never crosses her mind. So they go out and they end up fucking. <laughs> you know, first time you meet somebody, it's what you do. Not that I have a problem with that. You do you. So she wakes up and she's like, where is my roommate, the French girl? And she goes and she talks to Olga. She's like, what the fuck happened? And Olga's like, oh, she left with a boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And 
Jessica's like, that makes no sense. This was the French girl's dream to come to this yeah. school. Mm-hmm. It, it, and then she points to this music box that we've seen a couple of times at this point, and the French girl clearly was attached to it. Um, and she goes, she wouldn't have left it here. And Olga picks it up, and this is one of those moments where you're like, is it Olga? Like, they really make it seem like like it's Olga. She picks it up, and she goes, well, this is yours, isn't it? It's on your nightstand. And she goes, no, it's not. It's my roommate's, and she wouldn't have left with it. And so it feels very much like Olga made a mistake. Look, she would never leave without the music box. What is that? That's yours. It is on your dresser, isn't it? It belongs to Claudine. Hmm. Well, then she must have forgotten it. She wouldn't have to. She's gone home, Miss Anderson, and uh, that's all there is about it. She was supposed to clear out her shit. Uh-huh. And she didn't know that that belonged to Jessica because it wasn't on um, the French girl's nightstand. Right. So the question is, if it's not Olga, how much does Olga know at this point? Mm-hmm. Or is it Olga and she did a bad job of covering up for herself? Mm-hmm. So... The mystery begins. Yes. Um, so then Svetlana, the madame, tells the class that they are being graced with the honor of being accepted to join the Ballet Russe in rehearsal. And so they go to the theater and they do the rehearsal. And the first thing we see is this practical Joker character. This, uh, this British girl who is kind of Jessica's uh, rival at the school right now. A little now. bit, yeah. She she and her are, like, com- compared a lot in the class. Right. In Yeah, in the class, Jessica does really well, and everyone's excited, and Svetlana is, 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 congratulates her. And then she, sh- she asks this other girl to do another dance, and that one's amazing, too. And then she asks them to do it together, and Jessica doesn't do very well. Mm-hmm. And so it's they're setting them up as rivals. And so she is practicing with this man. And then when they're done and she's leaned down forward, she reaches up and she just grabs this guy in the junk. And she's like, what? I wanted to know if it was a cup or what, you know, and super inappropriate. And Olga yeah. is fucking scandalized. And Svetlana kind of like giggles into her hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, she thinks it's it's actually kind of. You know, oh, scandalous, but in like a fun way, right? But my, it's just like, dude, if a guy had grabbed a girl, yeah, we'd be like, oh my god, what an asshole, right? Totally. But the assumption is that every guy likes to be grabbed in the junk by a pretty girl, and so it must be okay. Uh, this is the point where I was like, if the killer is the madam, I'd be a little bit bummed because it, they they were setting it up to make it seem like. This girl was going to get killed next because she wasn't taking things seriously and because she was a practical joker. And I was going to be upset because the madame seemed kind of like she had fun with that. Mm -hmm. But as you point out, it's more likely because she was competition for Jessica. Right. So the British girl gets chastised and gets told to go wait in the wings. And while she's in the wings, she gets attacked and she gets uh, strung up. Oh, my God. That's the exact word that I used or term that I used is strung up. She gets one of the ropes, you know, from that that handle the curtains and everything um, wrapped around her neck. And it's like she's getting strangled. And then they do this thing where 
the killer like starts to pull her up and it's like, oh, she's going to get strangled, but doesn't stop. The line just goes up and up and up. And I don't, okay. For all you people that haven't been on an actual professional stage and backstage, those things are fucking really high. Mm -hmm. They are incredibly high. Um, It's like staring off into infinity. It's insane how tall theaters are. Because if you don't know anything about it, that's where they keep all the scenery. Yeah, there's lots of scenery gets kept up there. There's also the backs, you know, you'll see in a play sometimes where it's just color projected on a screen. That screen is kept all the way up there and it needs to be really big. So there's all this space up at the top and the catwalks and stuff. And she just gets yanked all the way up there. And it's one uninterrupted shot of her getting pulled up there. And it was like from a really low angle. It looked fantastic. Mm -hmm. It was great. Mm hmm. It was chilling, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it's straight out of Phantom. That's how he kills a stagehand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then Jessica's looking for her, and she finds Olga instead. And she's like, where is the British girl? And Olga's like, oh, she must have left too. Which again makes us think it's Olga. Yeah. Why else would she come up with this weird excuse? And Jessica's like, what the fuck? She just left? It also doesn't help. That Alex is there, too. He runs into Jessica. Mm -hmm. um, He's taking pictures while they're all on stage. And then he disappears and we don't know where he gets to. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's at still at this point, it could be any of the three slash four of them Mm -hmm. that are the the main culprits. Uh, They're actually doing a pretty good job of getting everyone together when when somebody is killed. Mm -hmm. It did bother me, though, that like. As far as I could tell. Jessica's basically standing directly underneath the British girl. And it's like, how do you not look up? Well, probably because she's not expecting anybody to be up. She's really, really high in the rafters. I don't know. I I always get annoyed by people who never observe their surroundings because, like, I was just in Vegas this past weekend. I was staying at the Venetian. And Mm. if you've ever been there, you know that the ceiling, well, maybe you don't know because you haven't looked up, the ceiling is covered in paintings, Mm -hmm. uh, just like in the Sistine Chapel. And as we were walking through, I was looking up at it, saying how pretty it was. And the other girls I was with were like, I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the fuck? How do you not look around? Well, so you notice that there are women who don't. Yeah. Or people, I should say. Later, we see that Olga and Anthony are having a conversation. And he's talking about Jessica. And Olga says that you're getting too fond of her. The German girl's better than her. Yeah, so there's another girl who is another rival. She's German, and she's just as good. She's the one that's hopped up on pills for energy. Yeah. I'm so excited. (laughs) She says, it gives me the edge that I need. Yeah. And Jessica's like, you don't need the pills. It's you (laughs) that's good. Pills? You mean you really are taking drugs? I need them. Jesse, give me those. I need them back. I have to sing. Jesse, you can't sing tonight. Yes, I can. Yeah, but she keeps doing them anyway until she she finally talks to Jessica and she's like, fine, I'll stop. And we find out later that she does get clean. Well, here's what happens. So uh, the madame says, "Okay, tonight you guys get to go out. You get to go out into the city. And while they're out, uh, the girl on pills gets all hopped up and gets frustrated with Jessica when Jessica says that, you know, you don't need them, blah, blah, blah. And... 
Jessica's boyfriend, the the photographer, leaves, and the Ger- the German girl's like, maybe he left with another girl. Yeah, and Jessica's just like, "Fuck you, bitch!" And then they go back to the thing, and it's the next day that the German girl's like, "You know what? I was really shitty to you last night for no good reason. I flushed my pills." Yeah. <laughs> Jesse, what we didn't actually talk about is that this night, while they're out having their fun night at the club and Olga's supposed to be chaperoning them, one of the girls goes out with her boyfriend. I think she is Russian. And so it's her actual boyfriend and it's not just some random guy. And um, she walks him to the train and he leaves and then she gets pushed in front of another moving train mm-hmm. and she dies. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, okay, there's one person who left another person who's gone missing and another person who was murdered or fell in front of a train. We don't know. Maybe she was too drunk. You know, we don't know exactly what the reasoning was. Things are getting really fucking weird and it doesn't stop because this next day we see the German girl practicing in an attic room and she gets confronted by somebody she recognizes. Mm -hmm. Kind of, Leaves out Alex then, although no, she did run into Alex, so she knows him too. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, And she ends up getting pushed out of a window, and they call it a suicide. Mm -hmm. So now they have somebody running away, they have somebody missing, they have somebody fell in front of a train, and somebody committed suicide, ostensibly. She's yeah. screaming when she goes out of the window, though, and I can't remember what else we were watching. Watching something at one point where somebody was swearing that it couldn't have been suicide because she screamed. And Jessica is just like, this makes no sense. How, why are we not upset about this? Like, all four of these girls couldn't have just all gone missing. It makes no sense. Uh, but you also skipped a sex scene. Oh, right. That was Whoa. happening. This sex scene was happening around the time that the German girl gets murdered. Yes. And Jesus Christ, there's a lot of boobs and there's a lot of groping of the boobs. Yeah. <laughs> Like, a lot. (laughs) Like, you might think that it, like, if you just saw that shot, you might think it was from a porno. (laughs) Like, it's a little bit too much. It is. Yeah. That's her with Alex. Alex sneaks in or whatever. This is when they shut down the school. And because now we have multiple people dead, a missing person, etc. And so they're going to shut down the school. And so Anthony comes to Jessica and he says, look, we're not doing the school anymore. That means I don't have anything to do right now. And just because the school is shut down doesn't mean that you shouldn't try out for the Ballet Russe. And I can spend time with you and it will be one-on-one and we can commit and it'll be even better than before. And she agrees Mm because she's actually really starting to enjoy herself with ballet. She's starting to trust Anthony. um, And they do very well. And for some reason, all of a sudden, she really likes Madame. Because he says it specifically, you should make her proud. And she goes, I will make her proud. And then throughout this whole sequence, she keeps asking, can the Madame come see me? Can Madame come see me? And his response is always, Madame is too distraught over losing all these girls and the school being shut down. Yeah. Also, we should mention that it's around this time that we get this creepy scene where, so he has like a mannequin that he keeps under the sheets when he's not her. Yeah. And he asks, 
they go into the room and Olga bends down as if she's listening to her uh-huh. and she goes, "Oh, Madame's not feeling well. She can't she can't get up right now." Yeah. Like she is feeding this delusion. Yeah, she's not only assisting, she's enabling. Yes. And it it becomes extremely confusing. I mean, eventually we find out that she's, like, in love with Robert Englund, which is why she feeds into this delusion. There are a, a couple of scenes like this where she talks to both of them. Uh, she, like, at one point, Robert Englund says to her, can you tell the madame to get ready? And Olga gets this, like, worried look on her face, yeah, and she's uh-huh. just like, I will do that. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now, but sure, I'll go tell her, you know? Uh, I, I think this might have actually happened before they do the one-on-one training, actually. This might be the reason that the school is closed. Yeah, this is the reason why the school is closed. I got turned around. The reporter, Alex, shows up and breaks into the school and runs into Olga. And together, they end up finding the bodies in this giant, I don't know what you would call it, den, office room like shoved into a cabinet or something like that and Alex gets stabbed and Olga doesn't see what happens and she has the knife and somebody's coming in because they hear a commotion and Olga hides and when Jessica comes out and sees Alex dead on the floor she starts freaking out Olga comes out like Jessica I don't know what's going on but she's holding the knife and Olga goes to plead and this is kind of dumb Olga goes to plead with Jessica and so she's kind of like coming at her with the knife and Jessica's fighting against her and it's like Olga yo calm down (laughs) take a step back you're seeming insane right now and very threatening and Jessica scene was forced yeah Very forced. Jessica forces Olga against a wall. She bounces off of it and then lands hand on the ground first, still holding the knife, (laughs) knife pointing up, stabbing herself. Mm -hmm. And now Olga dies. And and this is what closes the studio. And Robert Englund comes in. And as he's watching her die, she says, our secret is safe. I love love you. you. I love you. Oh, his secret is safe. Yeah, I love you. Our secret is safe. And here's what I wrote. If she knew about the murders, why would she investigate only to reveal the location of the bodies? Mm-hmm. If she didn't know but found out this way and is accepting, why did she walk out to Jessica in shock trying to profess her innocence? Why wouldn't she have stayed hidden? Mm-hmm. So a little bit of, you know, weird discrepancies, Mm -hmm. issues I have where they're trying to force this plot a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's probably why I'm not going to rate it like as high as I otherwise would. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is why they end up closing the place because it seems like an open and shut case. Mm -hmm. Olga was the killer and now she's dead. So they continue to practice Anthony and Jessica, and they get really close. But Jessica really wants to see the madame. Right. And so he says, fine. Seven o'clock tonight, go up to her room. She's still not feeling too great. So don't be surprised if it's not, you know, that great of an experience. And so Jessica gets ready. She goes up there and she finds madame in bed without her glasses on. 
She's talking very strangely. She's talking very strangely in a way that's really scaring Jessica. And she goes to find Anthony, who should be there, mm-hmm. and he's not mm-hmm. anywhere. And so she comes back and she finds Madame, like, standing. Mm-hmm. And again, she's talking nonsense. She's being all crazy. And we get a shot of Madame holding a knife. The idea is that Svetlana doesn't want to be replaced. Yes. And so... You hear the Madame Svetlana, in quotes, say in Anthony's voice, Robert Englund's voice, you won't replace me. Madame? You won't replace me! We're starting to notice that these personalities are having trouble cohabitating at this point. Mm-hmm. And Anthony and, keeps saying, don't touch her. Like, he doesn't want anything to happen to her. Right. You know? And he's worried that Svetlana wants to hurt her. And he's like, you know, she can dance, you can't. And Svetlana's yeah, like, she won't replace me. Exactly. And so that's why we get that same line repeated here, only it's in Anthony's voice. So we're starting to see that break. Jessica hits him? Yeah, and like him? the makeup starts to fall off. So it's like prosthetics. He wears prosthetics on his face so that it doesn't look quite exactly like him. But I mean, if you know his face, you know it's him. But he does have actual uh, things on his face to make him look different. And she hits him in a way that part of it comes off, and it's really creepy. Yeah, uh huh. But it's like. If you've ever seen Phantom of the Opera, half of his face is covered in a mask. Yeah. And that's what we're getting here. Yeah. Um, half of his face is in prosthetic and half of it is not. Right. And he ends up drugging her and, and saying to her, the world will only remember your glory, not your pain. Which I imagine is a very common saying in the ballet world because ballerinas and ballerinos, no joke, that's what you call a male ballerina, they deal with a lot of pain. It is not good for it your body. It is really not good for your body. <laughs> um, they suffer quite a bit. If you've ever seen, like, I really hope we get to do Black Swan. We are. Okay, good. Cause We're I'm, doing it with Perfect Blue. Oh, fuck Yes. That's not until the end of the summer, honey. Oh, damn it. It's going to be a while. Um, (laughs) Really, really excited about that one, by the way. So anyway, yeah, I imagine that the world will only remember your glory, not your pain, is, if not a phrase, at least a concept that's often repeated in the ballet world. Uh, And then he drugs her, and she wakes up thinking that that was just a really bad nightmare. And there are flowers there, and she's like, oh... Okay, because she's going to her rehearsal. That was all just a bad dream. There are flowers here. That's really sweet. And the note on the flowers is a note written to Svetlana. And that's when he appears. And she's like, oh, fuck. It wasn't a dream. (laughs) But she's now afraid of him. Yeah. So she agrees. She puts on the the brown wig. Uh, She goes to the thing. But... In the middle of her dance, she throws off the wig and says, I'm not Svetlana. And then she starts dancing all crazy. And and the and the, the people who are the ju- are judging her audition are like, 
Oh Brava. my goodness. Brava. Fantastica. Like, come on. Really? These stuffy ballet experts? It's like There's flash dance, right. man. There is no way <laughs> in hell. <laughs> and and this is when the, the real personality between Anthony and Svetlana really starts to break. Svetlana is so enraged that she wants to kill Jessica and Anthony will not let her. And so he's like thrashing about and he ends up getting upstairs to the balcony seats and instead of risking Jessica's life he has this little pea shooter gun which I'm sorry from that far away might have blown her hair back and that's it <laughs> tiny tiny little gun um, instead of allowing Jessica to get shot throws himself off of the balcony killing himself and in the process Svetlana mm-hmm. um, and that's the end of the movie again sacrificing himself For the woman he loves, straight out of Phantom. Right. Kelsey, lightning round. In the beginning, when we see the flashback of Svetlana doing her amazing performance, Robert Englund is looking out at the uh, the, the audience and they all have this bizarre makeup on. Remember that? Yes. And I don't know what that was about. It reminds me of Bronson with Tom Hardy. And for part of that movie, he kind of narrates to this fake audience, you, the person watching it, uh, this fake audience is there, you get a laugh track and stuff like that. He has like this mime makeup on, and it's very similar to what we see in this. And it's supposed to be very dreamlike, like almost like this is not all it appears to be. It's a little bit otherworldly. The scene where he encounters Jessica for the first time. Oh my God, the zooms. Yes. It is zoom, 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 zoom. Like, ah, yes, I've seen your face. Zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. Just shake your up. Is that a song? Yes. I do not know that song. Oh my God. But there are a lot of zooms. So we talked earlier about how this was originally intended, or at least so people think, there's a lot of reasons why we might think that, as a kind of spiritual sequel to Phantom of the Opera, and they were going to call it Phantom of the Opera 2, Terror in Manhattan, or something like that, and then they completely rewrote it when they decided not to go down that route, but when they released it in Japan, it actually had the name the Phantom of the Opera, like they labeled it Phantom of the Opera 2. And so people in Japan were really confused. (laughs) The people who knew about the movie, probably not that many. (laughs) So there's not a lot written about this movie. There's actually a website called phantomlibrary.com whose tagline is one woman's mission to consume all phantom media ever produced. (laughs) Uh, And Man, this lady writes a whole lot about this movie, but one of the things she writes is, A magazine in the 90s claimed that the original sequel was rewritten to become Dance Macabre because it was trying to escape the 1989 film's box office failure. But England himself, when asked in interviews, claimed that while he had read the script for the proposed sequel, it was never filmed in any way, much less as this movie. But... Dance Macabre was released in foreign markets under the title Phantom of the Opera or Phantom of the Opera 2, and it's obviously a second England phantom movie, so many fans still favor the theory that it is, in some distorted, rewritten form, what's left of the originally planned sequel. This movie depends entirely on a specific linchpin, and if you know about it ahead of time, the entire thing falls the hell apart. I 100% disagree with that last statement. I think this movie really stands up without that and i think it's better 
if you know the twist. Mm-hmm. Like we said in the beginning. He also, uh, Robert England at some point, I think it's, I think it's after she knows. I think it's before she goes into her uh, audition. He says, tortured people do things in this world no one understands. Yeah. And I think that is good because it kind of uh, brings us into the second movie. Just saying, that's a link right Uh, there. This movie, we didn't talk about it at all. We got through the whole thing and didn't talk about it. This movie takes place during what's called White Nights. It's the time of year far north of the equator during the summer when you get only a few minutes of nighttime every day. And the reverse is true for the winter As a matter of fact, just recently, the capital of Russia, Moscow, uh, got all of 30 minutes of daytime in the entirety of the month of December, like which was unheard of. Usually you get more than that. But you can imagine how people get really depressed during this time of year. Either way, there's no night. Like even when they go out to the club, it's still daytime. I wonder was it like a filming restriction or did they think it was a cool concept and so they put it in? I honestly don't know. I do like that it's kind of fascinating as a subversion of what we normally see, which is the opposite, mm-hmm. you know, like you see uh, 30 Days of Night, which takes place in Alaska, which is similar distance from the equator. Or maybe it's just something they did because they could only film during the day. We don't know. <laughs> Who knows? But the whole movie takes place in the daytime. And he also says many times, together we will revolutionize dance. Yeah. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> I also saw in the beginning that this is produced by Menachem Golem. Menachem Golem is one half of Golan Globus, which you may know as Canon Films. And Canon Films produced a lot of like schlock films. Uh, especially in the 80s and Haven't some of the 90s. Seen one? They made X ray. Ah! <laughs> they made a lot of shit, basically. They also made, I want to say, Masters of the Universe. I want to say the Masters of the Universe fuck was them. Did X ray get a movie release, a theatrical release? But this went straight to video. It was 1982 when slashers were all the rage. God. Yeah. Um, Do you have anything else? No, that's it. There's also one more thing that we haven't really talked about, and that is the name. Dance Macabre is actually normally spelled with an S. They're making it kind of a play on words by spelling it with a C, like the dance that we know, except, except, dance with an S actually means dance, with a C. So it's kind of pointless. Dance macabre actually translates from French to dance of death. It's an allegory that was used in art. It talked about how, like, death is something that everyone experiences. And so everyone gets to dance the dance of death kind of thing. It was a big thing in the Middle Ages. And there are movies called Dance Macabre, spelled with an S. Yes. All right, Kelsey. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess it doesn't. It only has an audience. It does not even have an audience score. It doesn't score. have anything. What do you think it got on Metacritic? Does it have one on Metacritic? It doesn't have anyone on Metacritic. Okay. Overrated or underrated? <laughs> not underrated. rated at all. <laughs> so by, by virtue of that, underrated. Yes. I think this movie is very underrated. Yes. 
<laughs> so basically, no one has seen this movie. That's sad. I liked it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it, too. It's most certainly not perfect. It's not a great movie, but I enjoyed it, and I thought he did a pretty damn good job. And So then, what would you give it? <laughs> I've been trying to come up with this. I think I would give it a 65. 65, huh? Yeah. I was thinking like 73. I was... Going back and forth somewhere in between 65 and 70. This movie was a whole lot better than I thought it was going to be, mainly because it's so nuts that it's a lot of fun. And not like so bad that it's a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, It's pretty well done. The problem is there are just too many inconsistencies. Yes. Inconsistency of plot, inconsistency of motivation. It's just all over the place. In support of this mystery that I really think they should have just fucking abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, so had they, I bet they could have done a lot more. I wouldn't mind seeing this movie remade. Yeah. I, yeah. I liked it a lot. I mean, I loved it for all of the phantom elements. But on top of that, I thought Robert England did such an interesting did a great job, job with the two personalities. I love the scene where half of his face is missing and he's going back and forth. I think that's a great scene. I wrote this at that point for that scene. I wrote, this is fucking amazing. Robert Englund is so perfect for this. Yeah. And I think if it didn't have as many problems with the plot, yeah, I would have given it a much higher score. Yeah. But it is, it is frustrating because it's just like, okay, why did this person get killed? Okay, how did they get away with this? Why doesn't Olga understand what's going on? You know, like... What the fuck is the reporter doing? <laughs> you know, like there were just yeah. too many things where it was like, "Come on, movie! I, I'm a pretty smart person. I'm. You need to connect things a little bit better here." All right, then that was 1992's dense macabre. Tortured people in this world do things that we may never understand. Before we move on to our next film, slash cards, Kelsey, what do you got for me? A single mother, haunted by the death of her husband, struggles to control her young son, who believes a monster from a picture book is living in their home in this 2014 film. The Babadook. Duck. 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 Yes. Yes, The Babadook. Really good film. If you haven't listened to our episode on The Babadook, please do. We get kind of into it <laughs> in that episode. We get real deep into what that movie means and i actually listened to something recently i can't remember what it was they were talking about the babadook and one of the great things about it they said was how many different interpretations there are and how it kind of means something to different people yeah it was the the new guy we're watching on youtube oh flick connection or something like that yeah but he didn't like it yeah he said it's overrated and i'm like fuck you no it's not it's really good it's not it's very good you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) But I like that guy, for the most part. Speaking of Halloween, Michael Myers' fictional hometown of Haddonfield is located in what U.S. state? In the movie? Like, not the real, where they really Yeah, in the movie. Illinois. You are right! I was torn between Illinois and Indiana. (laughs) Yeah. I actually would have guessed that one, too, and I'm not exactly sure why. Because it says Haddonfield, Illinois. 
Oh. Well, all right then. Yeah. I But I do know where it was filmed. Where? Oh, it was filmed in many places, including... Oh. Pasadena. Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Which is why they didn't have nice fall leaves. <laughs> anyway, next up, we have 2016's Split... Written and directed by, oh my gosh, M. Night Shyamalan. Here we go. We we did Sixth, Sixth Sense, Sense, which is probably his best film. Yes. And now we're doing Split. It stars James McAvoy, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Haley Lou Richardson, among others. And with a cameo, of course, by M. Night Shyamalan. Of course. Kelsey. He thinks he's Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> what is the premise of Split? A man with split personalities abducts three young girls and holds them hostage. For what reason? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Something having to do with a mysterious new personality. Mm-hmm. All right, Kelsey. This movie is available on HBO Go and HBO Now, which is where we watched it. I'm sure it's available in other streaming places as well. Should people watch it? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, watch it. If you haven't seen it yet, if you've seen it, I mean, I personally, I'll tell you right now, I think you should see it a second time. I agree. It is different the second time. Very different the second time. And in my opinion, a whole lot better. For me... (laughs) Kelsey couldn't get over certain things. I absolutely got over certain things. I prepped for this. I wrote down. I was like, (laughs) these are my these were my problems coming out of the movie the first time. I remember thinking I really like this movie, but it has these problems. And so I wrote them down. And as I was watching the movie, I was like, check that one off and check that one off because they answered like all of my problems. My problems remain. Right. But the second time, I wasn't so hyper-focused on them. When I was watching this in the theater- She had a hard time, like, focusing on the movie because yeah, it was I just angering her so much. I've said this before. It. I've said this before. Kelsey has a really <laughs> difficult time if she can't relate to any of the characters in the movie. <laughs> and she especially cannot relate to characters who make dumb decisions. And she hates a scary movie where all the bad stuff happens because people make bad decisions. <laughs> and you could say that this movie boils down to- one major bad decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But to answer the question, should people watch it? Yes. Yeah, go ahead and watch it. Uh, I think if you have to rent it, go ahead and do that if you're a little bit unsure. Um, But this is one of M. Night Shyamalan's good ones. And if you know who James McAvoy is... Holy shit. The best performance he's given so far. I liked it a lot better the second time around. When I could really pay attention to all the nuances, I thought it was a little bit silly the first time I watched it. Oh, I didn't. I thought his performance was outstanding the first time I saw it. But the second time, I I enjoyed it a whole lot better. So go ahead and please do watch the movie. And when we get back, we'll discuss 2016's M. Night Shyamalan's Split. Hello. I've been abducted with two other girls. M. Night Shyamalan. The master of suspense behind the sixth sense, signs, and unbreakable. He's got multiple personalities. Takes you inside the human mind. My name is Jay. Patricia Dennis. For his most twisted thriller yet. We have to turn them against each other. Someone's coming for you. 
Who's coming? Split. Rated PG-13. Kelsey. Yes. What happens in Split? So we open on a birthday lunch for a teenage girl. And we notice pretty quickly that the dark-haired girl doesn't quite belong. She's not really listening or paying attention, etc. And the... Etc. Etc. <laughs> and the uh, main... Uh, the girl whose birthday party it is, she tells her dad that she, like, invited her because she was inviting her whole art class and it would have been really awkward if she hadn't invited her. And the dad's like, well, we're not leaving until she gets picked up. And her her ride uh, doesn't show up. So he decides to take her, his daughter, and his daughter's best friend home. So, so far we have Claire, the blonde whose birthday it is, Marsha, her friend, and Casey, our main character. Mm-hmm. And uh, Claire's dad, Mr. Benoit. So they get into the car, but the the father is packing up the trunk. Full of the gifts and stuff that she got. Yes, and while she's while he's doing that, someone approaches them and he's like, Can I help you? And then the guy hits him. Now, right off the bat, I have an issue. This is when Kelsey's issues start. <laughs> yes. They're in a public parking lot. Yeah. And what, you're telling me no one saw this happen? Well, we saw, you're right, but we did see that there's nobody in this parking lot. It's an empty parking lot. In front of a restaurant (laughs) that we just saw was filled. Right, but everyone was leaving. It's lunch, it's daytime. I understand, but this is the (laughs) end of the party, and they stayed late waiting for her ride. Okay. Also... We see the assailant. It's James McAvoy, and he's not wearing anything over his face. So later, when we find out that he didn't kill the father, why the fuck didn't the father know what the guy looked like? Right, but even that, like, how far is that going to get him? Like, the only thing they could have done there is have a police sketch. And that would have done nothing for our character. Anyway, so then the guy, then James McAvoy gets into the car. And the two girls in the back think it's the dad, so they're not paying attention. So they're talking. Our main girl, Casey, she notices something is wrong. She sees some stuff, like, in the rearview mirror. Okay, fine. Suspension of disbelief, I'll believe that she just accepts it. Fine. Then the guy gets in the car. She goes to put on the the safety belt, and she sees it is not the dad. We're going to get into it here, people. Kelsey fucking hates this part. She cannot stand this part. And so I tried to explain to her, you could tell me how I'm wrong here. There are three major biological responses to danger. Fight, flight, or freeze. And we know later on in the movie, remember how I said all my problems with this movie, the movie actually does address. I just wasn't paying attention enough the first time around. We know she freezes. We know she freezes. She, spoilers for the end of the movie, she pulls a gun on her uncle and has the opportunity to get away from him and to save herself from him. 
and she doesn't take it because she freezes. When she's, she's a child and that makes she sense. She has frozen her entire life. That is her biological response to danger and it is ingrained in her from the trauma that she suffered as a child. Everyone of all ages is susceptible to any three of these. And we have a history of this girl freezing. This movie throughout is her applying her, what's the word I'm looking for? Her rebellious nature to her danger response. So by the end of this movie, she becomes resourceful. And it still doesn't get her out of it. She still is not saved by her resourcefulness. But she does grow as a person. That's why the last thing we see in the movie is her being told that she's going to go home with her uncle. And then she gets a look. I think that this has changed her in such a way that she can confront her uncle. In whatever manner that takes, we don't find out in this movie. But I think that's what we're given. So she does grow. But we have an, a history of her responding with the freeze response. We have it applying here. Because it's been applying to her her entire life. And then she grows and changes throughout the movie. If you don't grow and change throughout the movie, then what's the fucking point? Number one. And number two, if you are growing and changing, then that means you have to start from somewhere and then end up somewhere else. So that first place, preferably, is a place you don't like and you change for the better by the end. So... That freeze response is not a good thing necessarily. It's probably kept her alive before, but it's a thing that she ends up changing by the end of the movie. So I, I think you should feel good for her and this change. Does that make any sense at all? It makes sense. I understand what you're saying. And I get it. You use the same thing in the visit with the kid. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Whoa, yeah. Wow, I didn't even think about that, but absolutely. Now, who knows? If she went straight for the door, maybe he would have knocked her out right away. That's, I think, the implication when she goes for the door and she tries to do it quietly and slowly because he obviously isn't aware or at least not prepared for her to be there. And she goes to open the door quietly and slowly and then the door ajar alarm goes off and that's when he notices that she's there. And we know this is Dennis. We know that Dennis is meticulous. He has OCD and he is very, very meticulous about everything. And I think the fact that he's been following these women for four days, I think they end up saying. He's been following specifically these two girls and took this as his opportunity to get both of them together. He was not anticipating a third girl being there. And when she was, he's very surprised. And that's why he doesn't spray her right away, because he he's blind to her presence. At at this point, at least. Whatever. I it's <laughs> it's infuriating to watch. Yeah. Like the core premise is absolutely infuriating. Anyway. Can we talk about the nature of these girls and the dad a little bit? Just like a couple sentences. Go for it. Before we move on, I just wanted to say that. I like this dad. Yeah, he's a great this dad. This dad is a cool, like, he's a good guy. And I I kind of like Claire, too. Oh, I love Claire. Like, 
in the beginning, she's like, yeah, no, she's obviously troubled. She, we hear rumors that she gets into tension on purpose, and that comes up later. Like, she's obviously no, a weird outcast she, girl. She doesn't know that she does it on purpose. She just thinks she's oh, an Oh, she's always going to detention. She just thinks she's an asshole. Because she gets in fights with teachers, and she's always she always gets sent to detention. But she's like, come on. Like, I had to invite her. Like, if I didn't invite her and I invited everybody else and we got back to school, that would have been even more shitty than her being here and feeling like, outcast so i did the thing that's like the least harm dad i can't invite everyone in my art class except for one person without social networking evidence inflicting more pain on that person than was intended and i'm not a monster i'm proud of you i think (laughs) the fact that she cares about that kind of stuff i feel is a little bit uncharacteristic of probably what what we would consider to be the cliche of the girl in this situation. I think the cliche would be she's the popular cheerleading captain and is kind of a total bitch and makes fun of um, Casey a lot. Yeah, and it pisses me off that this movie, I mean, we're going to get there very soon. This movie makes it seem like she's an idiot. And that really pisses me off. She has, like, this waffling, I th- I think. You're right. Like, she goes kind of back and forth. Sometimes she's resourceful. Other times she's not. But, I mean, you have these three girls. There's going to be conflict. And I kind of appreciated that. They don't all agree on the best way to handle this situation. Which is why when they wake up in this room and they don't know what's going on, really, Casey's response is to... Play it safe, do whatever you can to not get hurt right now, and we'll figure something out. That's where her freeze response comes comes in, is do whatever it takes to survive right now, just get through it, and then maybe something will come along later. It's not always the best response, but it does explain why she responds that way. Well, yeah, no, I get all that, but I hate that Shyamalan presents this movie in such a way that... They He makes it seem like Claire is in the wrong to be like, we need to get out of here right away. We need to, like, get the fuck out. We need to figure out something. Right, but how does he do that? How does he do that? He does that by making us be on Casey's side. And how does he do that? He makes her seem like the 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 hunter, the huntress. Okay. The one who waits, the one who looks for a way out. Etc. And there are times. <laughs> yes, I know. It's so funny because normally you go blah 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 blah, and now this time you're just saying etc. etc. <laughs> and it makes Claire seem like the idiot. That's like we just need to get out of here and do something stupid. And that's not what she's saying. She's saying we need to work together. There's three of us. There's one of him. Mm-hmm. We can take him down if we work on together and that is exactly like literally when i was sitting in the theater i was like it's me it's me up on screen that is exactly what i would be thinking right but casey has a line which is that's not the way it's going to be in the situation because she explains you don't know what's on the other side of that door you don't know if he's going to come in with a weapon You don't know any of this. You have this scenario in your mind of the way to beat it, and it's just going to work out perfectly for you because everything's fucking worked out perfectly for you your entire life. The real world doesn't work that way, and there are unforeseen situations, and it's not going to play out the way you think it is. It's frustrating because it's one of the few times that a girl is on it 
and says, let's figure this out. Let's do something. Let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And who ends up being right? The one who says, let's just wait and see. Let's figure it right. out. But she's also, she's not a, a wilting flower. When Marsha is the first one chosen by Dennis to dance naked, it's Casey that's the smarter one who says, pee on yourself. Pee on yourself. Pee on yourself. She's not just going to sit around and let something happen to her. She knows ways to protect herself. And it's not karate kung fu. Because you're going to lose if you do that. Pee on yourself. Make yourself unappetizing to him. If you disgust him, he's not going to want to do anything like that to you. Now, you may get hurt in the process. What's better? And everything's unpredictable. We don't know. But I'm saying she's not just going, just sit there and let things happen to you. Like, that's not what she's saying. She's saying, let's gather more information. We have no idea what's going on right now. And if we make decisions based on the limited information we have, we are going to die. It's frustrating for you. This is what I'm gathering. It's frustrating for you that you see the way that you would react in one of these situations. And you have a director here and a writer, same person, who's telling you you will die if you behave this way. And that is kind of offensive. Yes. Okay. I totally get that. I wouldn't necessarily say that this movie is M. Night Shyamalan's way of telling women how to survive. I don't think that's what it's about. It's also really frustrating because Claire goes to her and she says, this will not work if you don't help us. You're right. It needs to be the three of us. We need to work together. And that's something that Casey has a real hard problem with. And it is a deficit of character for her. That she has a problem socializing, we see early on, with other people. And then later on, collaborating with other people when it's important. And... And that's a problem with Casey's character. Like, if it were me, I don't know what I would do to her. If I was like, we could overpower him. There's three of us. There's one of him. We could get out of here. And the girl's just like, no. <laughs> I'd go nuts. I'd go insane. Okay. So, yeah, he comes in, he tries to get a girl to dance naked, she pees on herself, blah, blah, blah. He's a germaphobe. He pushes her back in and is just, like, disgusted. Then we meet his psychiatrist. Yes. So, Dr. Fletcher, she specializes in people with split personalities, m multiple personality disorder. In this, they call it DID, which is short for Dissociative Identity Disorder. And she has this theory that she thinks the evidence has proven out, but that seems too extreme and nobody really listens to her about it. She believes that people with DID truly are completely different human beings when they take on their different personalities, meaning that one personality can have diabetes and the other cannot. Mm -hmm. One can be taller than the other. One can be stronger than the other. Right. Now, there are certain things in your body that are dictated by your brain, and they're involuntary, things like hormone levels and stuff like that, right? Now, what she's saying is that when your identities switch, when your identities switch, your the whole of your brain switches too, and it starts generating more estrogen if you're a woman identity, right? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And so this could be not only the key to understanding what's going on in the brain of somebody with DID, but could also be the key to 
curing some of these problems. Problems where your body produces incorrect levels of different chemicals and it causes problems. If somebody with DID does it involuntarily, could we find a way to trigger that in somebody? And this could be revolutionary for the medical field. Have these individuals, through their suffering, unlocked the potential of the brain? Is this the ultimate doorway to all things we call unknown? Is this where our sense of the supernatural comes from? But nobody believes her because it sounds like nonsense. One of the examples they give of her, like, proving it is that a dog would act differently around the different personalities. And they're like, that doesn't do enough. That doesn't And she's like, that's just one bit. That's just one thing. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of little things like that. Like, it seems to be that one person has diabetes and the other doesn't. And stuff like that. Different estrogen levels. Like, we test for this stuff, but the medical community doesn't want to hear it. I don't know if any of this is actually accurate to DID, but it's certainly an interesting premise. But I do know that there is a lot of disbelief in the medical community about whether or not it exists. Just the fact that it just purely exists, period, let alone what happens biologically. Mm -hmm. There is, as far as I'm aware, no medical consensus about this. Right. So she's talking to Dennis, but he says he is... Barry. Barry, the gay designer. Fashion designer, yeah. And he uses the word we, so we find out pretty quickly he is fully aware Mm -hmm. of his disorder. How would you describe what it's like inside the mind of Kevin Wendell Crumb? The way that they have described it is they're all sitting like in a big room in a circle in chairs, and... Different when the when a personality takes over, they get what they call the light. And so I think it's the way I imagined it is they're all sitting in a giant circle and one goes into the center. Right. That's the same way I imagined it. And we find out that Barry has developed the ability to dictate who gets access to the light, which is why Barry has become as far as the doctor's aware, the predominant personality. And it's also why personalities like uh, Dennis and Patricia, who we'll talk about later, um, have Have been been banished. They've been banned from the light because Barry has that power. And it's revealed later on, but we'll tell you now, that Hedwig, this nine-year-old boy Hedwig, um, he also eventually developed that same power and he banned everyone, including Barry, except for himself, Dennis, and Patricia. So for most of the movie, every single character you see is one of those three. He maybe pretending to be another one, like in this case where Dennis is pretending to be Barry, so the doctor won't be concerned. And we know she has reason to be concerned because she keeps getting these emails. In the middle of the night. Yeah, begging, and that's key begging for a session um, and help and to see her, to see the doctor. And that's because Hedwig, the one with this power, who's more powerful than Barry, falls asleep. (laughs) And Barry takes over and allows other people to access the light while Hedwig's asleep, and they end up writing emails to this professor. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, uh, watching it a second time, it became very obvious that this was Dennis and not Barry. 
Well, um, yeah, because he keeps moving things. He needs it to be perfect. He adjusts the chocolate bowl ever so slightly. He asks a lot of leading questions, like, you live alone? That he should already know the answer to. And when she says, you know this, he says, I know. I mean, how long? Like, he's diverting that response into, oh, I didn't really mean it like I didn't know it. Because, of course, I know whether or not you live alone. I mean, that'd be ridiculous if I didn't. <laughs> Me, Barry, I know. <laughs> um, and he leaves his sketches with her. He hands his sketches to her and he goes to leave. And she makes the observation that, ah, these are precious to you. You'd never leave these behind. So you want to take these, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> I'm going to probably say this a billion times in this episode, but... James McAvoy, never really thought of him as an outstanding actor. I mean, I know him mostly from X-Men and uh, Atonement, and I know he was in that stupid Ben the Bullet movie, which I never saw. Wanted. Yes, which I heard was awful. It's not good. <laughs> I just always thought he was just okay. He was just an actor, and he was fine. This movie, I think he does... A stupendous job. This is another reason why I say you should watch it more than once. First time I watched it, I thought he did a great job, but I thought it was a little silly. I feel like Hedwig is behaving way too young for a nine-year-old. Yes. He's acting more like a five or six-year-old. Yes. Um, but Or he's a nine-year-old with disabilities. That's the thing. I think he might have mental disabilities as a nine-year-old, and we see that develop you know, in line with the theories that Dr. Fletcher has about DID. And watching it a second time, I had so much more of an appreciation for his performance. I thought he did absolutely fantastic. That was the only thing I came out of the theater with. I hated this movie except for him. Uh-huh. I, I remember having this conversation with you. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. He was brilliant. Uh -huh. And he, he is. He's so, so good. The only time I don't like it is when we see him changing multiple times. Yeah. That's the only part that I didn't really like. Like when he's uh when he's Orwell, the professor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the intellectual. He's like saying things that like, "Come on, you are hyper right now. You're in a scenario where you're like panicked. You wouldn't be talking like this. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't be pretentious at this moment. That's the writing, though. But other than that one moment, I think he does such a profound job. Yeah. And I cannot wait for the sequel because the whole premise is going to be gone. The bullshit premise. Yeah, is just the part that she doesn't like. <laughs> and we're going to get to focus on him. And I'm very excited about them. Yes. For those of you that don't know or didn't get the end credit sequence, we get to see Bruce Willis's character from Unbreakable, who is Unbreakable. A superhero. <laughs> a superhero. He is a superhero and he fought against his villain. Spoilers for Unbreakable, Mr. Glass, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. They called me Mr. Glass. <laughs> they call me Mr. Tibbs. Right? <laughs> they call me Mr. Tibbs. Apparently, the next split movie is going to be the third chapter in this trilogy, where this character, the Beast, um, James McAvoy's character of Kevin... Uh, has these split personalities, and they give him extraordinary powers because, like Dr. Fletcher says, um, they are who, what they believe they are. 
She says that to her colleague, and that's her description of DID patients. They just don't know that they have this power. So Kevin's like actually tapping into this power, and that's the whole point of this character is that he ha- basically has a superpower, just like Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. Except, by contrast, Bruce Willis is unbreakable, and Kevin is completely fractured into 24 different but he's unbreakable physically yeah he he starts to unlock right it's like that same sort of thing like somehow in the crash bruce willis unlocked that part of his brain that gives him that super strength that gives him that invulnerability because it's a part that we just don't know how to tap into intentionally so it happens in ways where there's a uh, a major head, is basically, basically, what it but is. it's it, it comes from head trauma in the case of Bruce Willis and severe psychological disorder in the case of Kevin. Yeah. Anyway, so then we cut back to the girls and they wake Casey up and they tell her somebody is outside and we can now hear a woman's voice talking outside. Yeah. And so they think they're going to be saved. In walks uh, James McAvoy, and the look on the faces of the girls is really good. Right. Could you imagine you think there's somebody else? The door opens and this woman walks in. You can hear her high heels and all of that. And it's just the same fucking guy who up to this point you didn't had no idea had DID. Their, the looks on their faces is just like, oh, fuck me. <laughs> yeah. What is happening? It's very good. So they're totally freaked out, and it's a great moment. She comes in, she puts a chair down, and she explains, you know, like, he knows he's not allowed to touch you, he knows that. She's he talking about Dennis. for a reason. Right, because she yeah. was yelling at Dennis for uh, trying to... Grab Marsha. Yes. After that, he comes back in as Dennis, and he says, you are sacred food, and I promise not to bother you again. Could you imagine hearing that? Being like, uh, I'm what? <sighs> Well, I love Marsha's response. Does he have dogs? <laughs> you think he has dogs and he's going to feed us to his dogs? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then the next time they see him, he is now Hedwig. My name's Hedwig. I have red socks. So Hedwig is sitting in the in the doorway. And, and Casey he's just, wakes up to him sitting in that doorway and they're like, uh, Casey, wake <laughs> up. <laughs> and he's just got like this big dopey grin on his face. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's just staring at You guys them. can't see this, but Kelsey did that look. <laughs> it's really good. Um and he says he's on the move, and they don't know who's on the move. Uh, but they they figure out pretty quickly, okay, this isn't the same person. And Casey starts talking to him like she would talk to a little kid. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, how old are you? And he's like, nine. And she's like talking to him and she's saying, you know, I've got a secret. Do you want to hear it? And he goes, yeah. And she's like, come over here. I'll whisper it to you. And he's like, oh, okay. Like a little kid would. Like a like a kid. When I see him as Hedwig, it's a lot easier for me to take him as like a four or five-year-old. Yeah. The way he talks to her, more like five. Yeah. But I'd be appalled if any five-year-old's main man is Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... 
I think he's a nine-year-old with some sort of mental disorder. Yeah. Um, and he goes over there and she whispers to him, you know what we heard? We heard that he wants you. Yeah. We heard that he's coming after you. And you'd better get us out of here so we can save you. Uh-huh. And he's like, you're a big fiver. Like, <laughs> and you can tell that he's actually nervous. Like, uh-huh. fuck, is that what they said? And he's like, you know, I, you know, she's not mad at me anymore. And she's like, no, she is. Yeah. Miss Patricia is still really angry with you. And he goes, she thinks I'm stupid and that I make silly mistakes. You know, he he worked, Dennis worked really hard to make this place safe. And that's what leads them to think, okay, so this room did not exist the way it does now, not too long ago. Right. This he made all- modifications and maybe there's some sort of, quote unquote, unsafe, which they interpret to mean they can't get out, right? Right. Um, beyond, just beyond this room. Something having to do with how it's remodeled because it's new drywall and everything. So then Hedwig runs away because he is like, Dennis is going to talk to you. Like, this is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, he he senses that something wrong is happening. Now, this is the one time that I would be like, okay, then you should probably wait. Yeah. And not. Because you know Dennis is coming. Yeah. Like, you know that he's coming back really soon. Right. I agree that they did the right thing by figuring out that there's something going on, which is why all three women are going, you know, banging on the wall to see if they can, like, hear a hollow sound or something like that, and maybe that can get them out of here. That was the smart thing to do, but then... And see, this is what I'm talking about when I say that Shyamalan is saying that Claire is stupid. Yeah, so Claire gets impatient, as I imagine any woman in that situation would, one of three, or not would, but could... One of three of these girls is gets too impatient, and we've learned from earlier that patience is the key to this situation, takes her shoe off and with her high heel starts trying to break through this hollow sound in the drywall she heard in the ceiling. And sure enough, she finds a grate in the ceiling. And as she's climbing through and asking for them to help, and they're like, well, shit, now we're committed. They, like, stop him from coming in the door. And it's Hedwig first. Uh-huh. So Hedwig What are you guys is, doing in there? Yeah, and Hedwig <laughs> is only nine, so he doesn't have as much strength. Right. Which and is why it kind of pisses me off that he's able to kind of get through. He doesn't get through. Oh, it's Dennis. Dennis gets through. Well, whatever. Which is another indicator. Dennis gets through, not Hedwig, because Dennis is stronger, even though they're the same physical body. Um, so Claire is able to get it open and is able to pull herself up. Which Which was insane. But I mean, like, we kind of saw her do it. I'm sure she might have been helped up by her feet or something like that. Um, and we, it was just outside of frame. There are people who can do pull-ups. I'm no good at it. (laughs) I cannot do a pull-up to save my life. (laughs) And this would literally be a pull-up to save your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that's... See, I'm all for, okay, when he comes in, we bum rush. Like, that's yeah. that I understand. I don't think it's a smart idea to start looking for your escape route when you know he's right outside the door. Right. Right? Like, I... It's really upsetting. The, this whole abduction part is hard for me to watch. Right. Well, because we know, we heard when we were talking about Silence of the Lambs, that this was, like, your thing. It is. Is abduction. And yes. so it's constantly on your mind. Yes. And I gotta say, 
maybe not constantly on everyone's mind. Although we do know that Claire did six months of judo or something like that. <laughs> Whatever it is that karate, she said. Karate, I think. Yeah. Oh, oh, because you did karate <laughs> at the King of Prussia Mall. <laughs> Tell me. And your six months of karate at the King of Prussia Mall can blow me too. No. So he comes in and obviously there is no Claire and he can see the hole in the wall and he knows what she's doing. So then she pisses me off again because she takes her first exit. The very first ex- exit she sees. She doesn't try to figure out what the different rooms are, what her options are. Or at the very least, just don't exit through the very first grate that you see. That's probably going to be the first place that he goes. Yeah, <laughs> like, you were able to get up there. That's impressive and that's amazing. Take your time while you're up there. Yeah, so she... Bust through that grate, and so he finds the first open grate that he comes across, and he he's searching for her there, and she's hiding in a locker, because this is in a locker room, and we have no idea where this is. And she's hiding in a locker room, and he finds the one that she's in, and he's like, come out here right now. You know, like, make it easy on yourself. Get out of that locker. And then he stores her in another separate storage room. Mm-hmm. And he locks her in there. And now it's only Casey and Marsha who are left. And he's like, don't try any of that shit. She's now on her own. Mm-hmm. And he immediately fixes the thing up top. Right. So next visit to the doctor. She's talking to one of her superiors who was telling her, you know, it's all the stuff about, like, the dog thing is bullshit. I don't think it's one of her superiors. I think it's one of her peers. Colleagues? So, yeah, it's one of her colleagues because we know in from the first visit when Dennis, as Barry, asks what would happen to them if, you know, she dies or something like that. She says, oh, I have another colleague and he is aware of your situation and he can help you. And I think this is that colleague. And this is where she explains through their suffering, they unlock the abilities of the brain. This is where our understanding of the supernatural comes from. Yeah. It's stuff that we've always been able to do. We just didn't realize we could. Yeah. Kind of like that Lucy movie. Okay. (laughs) You guys should know. I fucking hate Lucy. I hate that movie. I never saw it. It is so fucking garbage town. (laughs) And the ending is the worst fucking part. But the whole thing is like, they go too big. So at first, first time I saw this movie, I was like, we know the beast can do things like crawl on the walls and stuff like that. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like physically possible. They explain it. They do explain it. But the first time I saw it, like, I didn't catch that explanation. She says it's that he is so agile and so strong that you can imagine that a human being, theoretically, if if they could get strong enough, which is not generally humans can't tap into that strength, but we know he is superhuman when it comes to that strength, uh, he can, like, grip the imperfections in the wall. And we see this wall. It is imperfect. It is textured, and he's holding on to his entire weight just by his fingers because he is that strong. Um, And they explain that, and I totally missed that the first time around. And I'm like, oh, okay, it makes a whole lot more sense. I can understand logistically how that works now because that was a big problem. It's like, yeah, sure, he untaps the shit in his brain. It wouldn't make his fingers sticky. No, that's not what's happening. He's using human physiology but super strength to grab onto this wall. 
unlike in Lucy, where she untaps that part of her brain and now she can rewind time. <laughs> and now she's telepathic. Like these are hu- these are abilities that are just not controlled by the brain. Just I, I don't know why. I mean, I saw that in the trailer and I was like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> but I, I thought it would be a good movie because it's made by the guy who did Fifth Element. I love the fifth element. <laughs> but we get this next visit to the doctor where Dennis Asbury shows up again because he has to. Because overnight, more emails were sent to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And so he has to show up and say, listen, it's just I have these anxiety attacks and I get really panicky and then I sleep on it and I'm fine. I just want to let you know that things are totally okay. And she keeps telling him to his face. She's like, I know you're lying to me. Yeah. And this is the visit. The second visit is the one where she's like, I don't think you're Barry. I think you're Dennis. And he keeps like, she's like, can I make a guess based on what I know about you? And then this is where she calls out the chocolate dish and that sort of thing. And I don't know how you got to the light because from what I heard last time, Barry banned you from the light. I'm encouraged we can finally meet. And I've guessed this because you've adjusted the chocolate dish twice since you came in here, and I understand you have OCD. <laughs> I see. Now I see. That's clever. That's clever. But I'm, I'm, I'm not Dennis. And you and Patricia have been banned from the light for quite a while now, primarily, shall we say, because of your beliefs. Patricia and Dennis are very unstable. I'm not Dennis. Have you both taken charge now? Please believe me. I'm Barry. And she's not, like, threatening or anything like that. No, she's very good at her job. Yeah. She's extremely comforting. Uh Uh-huh. She's extremely positively manipulative. Yes, and and Dennis doesn't give up the facade, at least not in this visit. He doesn't until later, until the next visit. She does say, may I talk with one of the others? And he says, that can't happen. I told them I just wanted to see you. And it's like that right there uh-huh. tells it's her that suspicious. something is yeah. wrong. So she is doing this. She's doing that thing where she's asking questions that if it actually were Barry, she'd know she'd get a different response. Mm-hmm. Barry wouldn't have any problem with any of the other 20 personalities coming out and saying something that aren't Dennis and Patricia. This is also where it is confirmed that he has 23 identities. Yes. But she keeps pushing, as Chris said, and eventually he gets not hostile, but please believe me. Yeah. I am Barry. And she then immediately, you see the look on her face. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to stop. This has become threatening. Yeah. uh (laughs) This has become a hostile situation. And she says, my job is to challenge you. Yeah. uh You know, and she plays it off like, of course, you're Barry. But but now she knows like she stops that line of questioning and she gives him the confirmation that he wants, which is I believe you that you're Barry. But she's absolutely lying to him at this point. Now she knows for certain that it's not Barry and almost for certain that it's Dennis. And so how does she find out? She goes to her super or somebody who has access to the security cameras, Jai or Hooters lover, as he's listed in the credits, M. Night Shyamalan. This is his cameo. Yay. And I would say that in this scene, it has your typical pretentious Shyamalan dialogue in the form of Dr. Fletcher, right? But I think he's aware of that. 
because his character's dialogue is just so basic. It's from Hooters. If I didn't eat it, I'd have to throw it out or whatever. You know, like he just has totally normal dialogue and it's not a banter back and forth of two people who are using dialogue that they wouldn't use. It's the intellectual who's teasing her kind of dim-witted neighbor <laughs> that she likes. And so she's using this elevated dialogue to like make fun of him, you know, good natured. Jay, what health conscious fast food purveyor did you originally solicit to buy these chicken wings you've so lovingly reheated in a minor suicidal gesture? Hooters, and you can't just throw them out, Dr. Fletcher. Oh, this is wrong on so many levels. So at least there's a reason for this pretentious dialogue to happen. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> he made me okay with his dialogue. But so they're watching the video and they watch how the trash cans are all messy outside. And they see a couple walk around it so they don't have to walk through the trash. Uh-huh. And then Dennis very specifically walks through the He kind of pauses trash. and then walks through it, right? Yeah. And he's like, um... Shyamalan says, why would anyone walk through trash? And she, and the doctor goes, no one would. Right. That was done on purpose. Yeah, that was a deliberate thing to show that... I don't have any problem with trash. Mm -hmm. And he is so insistent on coming off as not somebody who's OCD and, and a germaphobe that, which we know Dennis is, because we know he wipes down every surface. He gets really disgusted when Marsha pees on herself. Uh, the bathroom is completely clean and immaculate. He comes along with color-coded cleaners for tile and for ceramic and, you know, all that. Uh, he is totally germaphobe and totally OCD. And he doesn't know how people without OCD behave. And he is so insistent that he's not this dentist that has OCD that he's like, I will deal with this trash and I will walk right through it. <laughs> and he's so obsessed with that viewpoint and trying to come off as somebody that's not OCD. He doesn't realize, no, even a normal person would have walked around that trash. <laughs> During that session, she explained why Kevin is the way that he is. It's because he had an extremely abusive mother and his father walked out. And... The reason that he created this specific character, this specific identity, Dennis, was because his mother would beat him whenever he made any sort of mistake yeah. uh, with cleanliness. And so he created Dennis because he needed someone. To be OCD. Yes. So that he would clean. stop getting beaten. Yeah. Uh -huh. This is when Patricia comes in. Uh-huh. And Patricia makes them lunch. Oh, is this that scene? Yeah. Okay. And she, as Patricia, he makes the greatest faces. He's like, it's got paprika in it. Yeah. I don't know how to describe that. <laughs> now, Patricia isn't, um, she's not a germaphobe like Dennis is, but she also has OCD. She's a perfectionist. She's a perfectionist. Yeah. In a different sort of way. This is another personality that is a perfectionist. And... These two perfectionist personalities are the ones that are the danger. It just happens to be that out of 23 personalities, the two that are the perfectionists that Kevin created in order to protect himself are the ones that go to extreme lengths in order to protect him by creating the beast. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you describe that face, though? I don't you know, know. It's like a... I, I'm doing it right now. Exactly, it's like, oh, I can do it, but I don't know how to. <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of pursed lips, <laughs> eyes rolled up. You know, smile on your face. Mm -mm -mm, kind of, kind of, yeah. 
It's so good. I just, I love it. She says, this must all seem so unsatisfactory to you, but we are doing our best. Like, yeah. they're trying She's to make polite. them comfortable yeah. while they're staying there. And so Marsha gets it in her head that this is the opportunity to run. And this is another moment that Kelsey fucking hates because she agrees with Marsha about what Marsha's going to do, but Marsha's a fucking idiot and doesn't do it right. Mm -hmm. So while she's making the sandwiches and she's like, oh, the cut is crooked. Like it's yeah, not a straight slams line. slams the knife down. Yeah, she's like super upset and we know that she gets aggressive when things aren't just so. But then she apologizes. Uh-huh. It's crooked. Forgive me. <laughs> and then she goes to make a completely new sandwich. And so her back is turned again. And she has this knife. And so Marsha gets up. She picks up the chair. And she slams it into the back of Patricia and fucking books it. This is Kelsey's problem. And I agree with her. Not that she is. She's in adrenaline mode. She's not thinking clearly. What she should have done is beaten the snot. Out of Kevin slash Patricia. Grab right the then knife. And there. Stab the shit out of him. Yes. And she doesn't. Instead, she hits him once and then books it. Which gives him the opportunity to. And Casey realizes Marsha's mistake and. Does nothing. Right. She freezes again. Yep. But she doesn't go to attack him partially because it's like. We just this opportunity is lost. Yep. We just lost this opportunity. We're Not waiting. that Casey would have taken it anyway. No, 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 because Casey is trained to wait patiently for the perfect opportunity. You lead your target, which is what she does with Hedwig, right? And she also knows that, I mean, this you can't apply this universally. This is a gender stereotype. But with deer, at least, the women are more cautious. The does are more cautious. They're aware of their surroundings. They smell the air. Meanwhile, when they're in heat, the guys are reckless. And so she can get to you through these sorts of weaknesses. And so she's waiting for the correct opening, and this was not it, in her mind. And it could have been it, at least as far as Marsha's concerned, but Marsha doesn't capitalize on it properly. And Casey doesn't either, because she doesn't know how to capitalize on these situations that she's not prepared for. And Patricia slash Dennis hunts Marsha down and locks her away in her own closet, which is actually next door to the one that Claire is in. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, well, Casey, you're by yourself now. Mm -hmm. And so she ends up talking to Hedwig and Hedwig's the one who explains exactly how these three personalities got to power. It's the same explanation we talked about earlier where Hedwig developed the same power that Barry had to give the personalities the light. And we also find out that how these emails are getting out is that when Hedwig falls asleep, Barry capitalizes on it. Mm -hmm. And this this is – we also find out this is the only reason why Hedwig's allowed to come out at all is because he has this power. And Patricia and Dennis are especially nice to him even though he's a fuck up because he's the one that has this power and they're taking advantage of him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only reason why they keep him around and they're acting nice and Hedwig misinterprets that as – you know, oh, they like me. They want to keep me around. They they think I'm important or whatever. And they he can't see that he's being used. Mm -hmm. So out comes Hedwig. And he's talking to Casey about his room. And uh, like he's got a window and 
Kanye West is his main man. <laughs> he has yes. a CD okay. player. So I have this written down here as a testament to the writing. This is why I was talking about M. Night Shyamalan's writing. I think his writing is some of his best so far. He gets over himself and a lot of his pretension that he has. Um, is that I'm really worried when I edit this episode about editing in almost every single fucking line of this movie. There's so many good lines, and Kanye West is my main man is one of them. It's so good. I like dancing. You like dancing? I, I, I like dancing to my CD player in my room. Kanye West is my main man. He's like, can I kiss you to Casey? And she says yes. She says yes because she wants him to trust her. Yeah. And it's this really awkward kiss. And at the end, he's like, you might be pregnant now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This whole scene is gold. It is so good. He he tells Casey that, you know, he really likes music. He has a CD player that he keeps by his window and he dances to it. And 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 that's that's what he does for fun. And she keys in on window. Mm hmm. He has a window. And so now she's focused on Hedwig. I want to see you dance. And really, she's using him the same way Patricia and Dennis are. Yes. Um, I want to see you dance. Take me to your CD player. Or she says, I want to see you dance. And he's like, we can't. My CD player's in my bedroom. And she's like, oh, well, then you're just going to have to take me to your bedroom. Or I think she goes, oh. And then she like pretends like she thinks about it. And she goes, you could take me there. Right. She can't seem too eager. She needs to fool him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so he does. God damn, if this isn't the most amazing dance scene. <laughs> I literally wrote, God, the dancing scene is so good. <laughs> I wonder what it was like filming that scene. I love, like, I, I've i never had a thing for James McAvoy. He's just not my type. But after this, I have an enormous crush on him for his acting abilities. Yes. Oh, uh, my God. So... Hedwig says, I love Kanye West. He's my main man. Kanye West has a song called Through the Wire. And in that song, there's a line, uh, unbreakable what you thought they called me, Mr. Glass. I must got an angel, because look how death missed his ass. Unbreakable what you thought they called me, Mr. Glass. Where he references Shyamalan's movie, Unbreakable. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and so Shyamalan put him in this movie. That's, that's in awesome. the Unbreakable universe. It's pretty cool, I thought. <laughs> Satan's pretty cool. Satan's pretty cool. Satan's pretty cool. This is also around the time that we start getting a look at flashbacks to Casey's childhood. Right. I think we might have already seen one at this point. We've or, seen a bunch at this point. Right. And we find out that she's taken on hunting trips by her father, who's a very loving man, and he's taught her how to hunt and how to protect herself. But he he is not aware that... His brother, her uncle, is abusing her when they're out on these trips and when he's sleeping or bathing or whatever. And it's absolutely awful. We're not going to get into the details of this, but we see that that's the trauma that she's really experienced. And that's that feeds into why she behaves the way she does. And then her father dies. And so she's left in the care of her uncle. Right. So he's been just abusing her her whole life. We don't see any of that. After her father dies, but we get the implication that things did not get better. Yeah. In the room, when Hedwig is dancing, Mm -hmm. she gets this look on her face. And 
she's looking around. And if you're astute, you know what she's worried about. She's looking for the window. And she sees what the window is, and it's just a drawing. And she says, I thought you said the CD player was by the window or something to that effect. And he's like, it is, here it is. And it's like, see, it's closed. And then he flips up the drawing and it's another drawing of an open window. And now it's open, closed, open. And then he looks and he's like, wait a minute. Did you think this was a real window? So you could leave? Did you think it was a real window? So you could leave, etc. And he gets like, he starts to get really hurt. You know, and it's really sad. <laughs> it's so poor Hedwig. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know any better. <laughs> they get into kind of an argument a little bit about it. And Hedwig feels the need to impress her. And he does so by showing her some of the stuff that he has. And one of those things is a walkie-talkie. And she takes it from him and starts talking. And he's like, no, you can't. Don't say anything. You know, don't say anything. I'm going to get in so much trouble. You're going to get me in trouble. And she gets somebody on the other line. And we don't know who it is. We imagine it's security or something. And Hedwig has it because he likes listening in on the conversations that people have. He doesn't talk into it himself. And she gets a hold of somebody. And she's like, I'm being kept captive and yada, yada, yada. etc. And the dude doesn't believe her. Oh, is this... Such and such woman, you pranking me? Or yeah, it, yeah, it is the dumbest thing because... How'd you get our walkie-talkies? It's a little hard to believe that there would be somebody that would have their walkie-talkies claiming to be kidnapped. Like, Well, not only that, who gives a shit if it's real or not? It's your job to find out what's going on. Yeah! And he gets his comeuppance a little later in the form of personal trauma, but he's probably also going to be in trouble when she says what happens. But it's just... It, it's just common sense. You look into it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Who gives a fuck if Especially it's a Especially since the joke never pays off. Nobody's like, I got you. Exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. Like, just because you don't want it to be true does not mean it is not true. And by the, by the end of it, when Casey's realizing that he's not going to help her, Hedwig gets Dennis and Dennis takes it from her. I think it's Dennis. It might be Patricia. I think it's Dennis. Yeah. Uh, just takes it from her. And it's like, nope, you're going back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And puts her back in there. Yeah. It's Shyamalan relying on, like, why even include that? There's no point. It does. It goes nowhere. But it gives us a little bit. So we see a little bit more about where they are and why he has access to this. They mentioned earlier about, you know, other people. He's doing people. really well at his job. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we see a bunch of pictures of, like, a tiger uh, we they talk about a lion, I think, at one point, and there's a walkie-talkie and someone's there that might be security. So we know they're at a place, you know, probably that is open to the public at certain points, and there's a lot of references to animals. If you pay close attention, you can find out on your own that they're underneath a zoo, and this is where Barry works. And lives. And lives, Yes. He needs a place to live, so he lives there at the zoo. Mm -hmm. And nobody goes down there because that's his living quarters. Next scene is with the doctor. And she uses the word extraordinary, and she talks about how great it is, how incredible it is, what they can do, etc. 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 We haven't said this. Hedwig says etc. a lot. (laughs) To sound smart. Yeah. She coaxes 
Dennis to admit that he is Dennis. And he explains, you know, the Horde makes fun of us. He's talking about himself and Miss Patricia. He's like, you know, they make fun of us. They think we're um, insane and stupid for believing in the Beast. Uh Uh-huh. And she's like, well, have you ever met the Beast? He says, no. And she goes, well, there you go. You all sit in this room together, as far as I've been told. And you haven't seen him. He's not in one of these chairs. He's made up by Patricia to control you. Right. Yes. But we know power of belief is what this entire movie is about. Their belief changes their physiology. And by extension, it can create another personality that can also change their physiology. The beast exists because the belief in the beast grows through Patricia and Dennis and ultimately Hedwig and their belief and these rituals that they, that they're doing like capturing these women to feed the beast that builds up belief in their head and it creates the beast out of whole cloth. And that's what gives the beast its power. She explains, you know, I think the beast is, you say that the beast lives in a train yard. That's because Kevin's father left on a train and never came back. Yeah. So that's where the beast lives. He's a fantasy. She tries to make it, you know, make sense to him. She does say, look, I could say Kevin's name. Yeah. And that would bring him back. And Barry's face, I mean, Dennis's face is like, uh, I didn't know you could do that. You can trust me. For example, I do have the ability to use Kevin's full name and bring him forward as he has in the past. But I wouldn't do that. I know that that would be chaos for all of you. Everyone would grab the light. I don't want to hurt any of you that way. That, that's, that's important because it's going to come up later. But she says, I will not do that because I respect you and I like you and yeah. I think you are extraordinary. And he, he really softens and he, you know, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Like, nobody believes in us. And she goes, of course I believe in you. And so eventually we get to the point where um, one night the doctor gets a fuck ton of emails because they know tonight's the night. Tonight's the night that the beast consumes these little girls and comes, these little girls, these young women, and comes into being. And so every one of these extra personalities, like, sends their own email, right? And the doctor, Dr. Fletcher, shows up at the zoo and asks to come inside so she can talk with Dennis and really figure out what's going on. And she starts to get really frightened when Dennis is talking about the beast and how tonight's the night and all of that stuff. And so she does things like she shoves her handkerchief into um, the door jam so it can't close all the way. And she goes, oh, can I just use a restroom before I go? And she ends up finding Claire in the room. And she's like, oh, shit. And Dennis comes up behind her and is like, well. And he tells her, he tries to reason with her at first. He's like, look. They are asleep. They will never meet our true potential. And through the consumption of these people, we will be able to do that. Right. These are pure, innocent people. This is a means to an end. Yeah. Uh Like, accept that. This might seem crazy, but it's going to lead to greatness. And she's like, this is an egregious wrong. I can't. I cannot let this go. 
And he's like, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. And he hits her like over the head at first. And while she's like on the ground and she's knocked out, she's trying to come to her wits. She drags herself up and she writes down on a piece of paper something. We don't know what that is. And then he comes back in, not having seen her do this. And he grabs her from behind and starts to tap into this beast. And he crushes her to death mm-hmm. uh, with his bare arms. She tries to say his name, but she can't. Yeah. And yeah. And then he crushes her to death. And um, and so she dies And through all this hullabaloo, Casey is able to break out of the room. And she finds the living room, I guess you could say. So we've seen the kitchen. We've seen the bedroom. This is like the living room where Barry's computer is. And she finds, she starts to really comprehend what's going on. She finds like video journals of all the different personalities. And we get to see a bunch of them. Yes. So we get to see a girl who has diabetes. Yeah. And she's like, if we're not real, how come I'm the only one with diabetes? Yeah. Ate my insulin shots. No one else around here has to take them. Why do I have to diabetes? All the doctors, besides Dr. Fletcher, say that we're the same person, just personalities. Huh? How do you explain I'm the only one that needs these, you motherfucker? We get to see the intellectual. Orwell. Who Jade talks, is the diabetic. Orwell is the intellectual. And he talks about how, you know, we, we should face off their advances with their scare tactics, you know? Yeah. like With regard to Jahamana's defeat and Muhammad, of course, conquest between 1192 and 1200, I would liken it to Muhammad's brazen ultimatum that Prithviraj either apostatize or fight. <laughs> like Prithviraj's defiance, we should stand up to the Horde's advances. And face off their scare tactics, we should choke. They all recognize that Patricia and Dennis are trying to suppress them. Uh-huh, which is why Barry ends up banishing them from the light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get to see a long one of Barry, and he he's so cute. Uh, he talks about how... Um, I just love Dr. Fletcher. She's such a sweet lady, you know? Yeah, and, and he's going to go see her. Yeah. Right? And so he goes and he grabs his keys and he goes to leave and he turns the video off. And that's where Casey sees their keys. And she goes to where the keys are and she gets the keys and maybe now she can get out. That was the last time Barry was Barry, I think. I think it's that's because he's carrying sketches. In that scene, I think he's Dennis by the time he gets to her office. Well, there is something weird. I The chronology here is a little confusing. He hits her over the head, right? He hits the doctor over the head, and he goes to the train yard to find the beast. Mm. And it's while he's away at the train yard that the doctor is struggling to get up, and Casey is breaking out and gets these videos and stuff, and... When he comes back as the beast, like Kel- like Kelsey said, his Kevin's father left on a train, and that's where he thinks the beast is going to come from. He goes to the train yard to become the beast, and he does, and he runs home. He finds Dr. Fletcher, and that's when, as the beast, he crushes her to death. So he's the beast at this point. Mm. And this is when Casey finds the doctor. Is dead. Is dead. And finds the paper, and it says... Say his name, Kevin Wendell Crumb. Yes. 
And so when the beast comes in, she says it. And it's kind of meek and quiet. Like, she doesn't know what's going to happen. So she's like, Kevin Windlecrumb, you know? <laughs> Kevin Windlecrumb. And he, like, stumbles back. And he's like, and, you know, fucking with his head. And like, ah, Jesus. Trying to fight Kevin from coming back. And she says it more and powerfully. She gets more confident. Kevin Windlecrumb! And he eventually turns into... Kevin. And what does he say? What does he tell her? First, he says, who are you? What yeah, are you doing here? Uh-huh. And right, she's like, yeah. she's what is like, going on? <laughs> yeah, he's like, what's happening? And she goes, something terrible. Yeah. And he's just like, wait. And he sees the doctor. Yeah, he sees the doctor. He's like, who did that? And she's like, you did. And he's like, the last thing I remember, I was on a train. And and he goes, wait, isn't this, isn't this Something, something 2014? Yeah. And this movie came out in 2017, so it's like, oh, no. <laughs> and once he realizes what he's done, what's going on, he's just like, that's where my shotgun is. That's where the shells are. Just kill me. You have to kill me. I swear I was on a bus. I don't remember anything after that. I. This is still September 18, 2014, right? There's a shotgun I bought. It's in the bottom cabinet hidden behind things. The shells are in my uniform closet out in the service hall. Kill me. Kill me. Because obviously I do terrible things and I don't know it. And so just kill me. This is the point where we get to see him, James McAvoy, go in and out between the personalities. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. He can't handle reality. My name is Jade. Has Dr. Fletcher been getting our emails? This is what we have to do. We can... As in 1008, when Anadipala suffered the Shahi's most crushing defeat and Mahmud overran the entirety of the Punjab region, taking the famed Temple of Kangra, we have been wronged by this alliance, this horde of Patricia, Dennis, and the boy. Their actions do not represent us. They are every... Everybody just take a minute. Oh, baby girl. They've been stealing control of their life from me, but their group are going to work through this. Honey, my name is Barry. You shouldn't have used the walkie-talkie. He does a really good job, but it doesn't feel real. Because he does it too quickly. Because it's like... And then there's a personality, you know? Like, it just... And maybe that's the way it really works. How the fuck do I know? I don't know anything about DID. But just something about the way he did it felt fake. Everything is so elevated and exciting. And every one of the personalities is struggling for the light. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is there's a fight happening inside of him where they're all fighting for the light. And the second they get out, they're just trying to say whatever they can say and and maintain control. And none of them can. And that's okay. I'm, I understand that. I'm okay with that. It just looks silly. It It is a little silly. Yeah. It. You know what it reminds me of? 
it reminds me of the Clayface episode of Batman the Animated Series, where when he's finally taken out, I think by electricity or something like that, and he keeps getting electrocuted by a television because um, he was an action, he was a movie star, and he played all these different roles, and he was a man of many faces, and you see him and turning into the different faces. That reminded me of this. So she gets the shotgun and the shells and he turns completely into the beast and we get this really great moment like she shoots him and as far as we know nothing happens she may have missed right the first time and then we get this really great shot it reminds me a lot of my bloody valentine when the miner is walking down and throwing his pickaxe up and yep. breaking all the lights as he's walking down this tunnel and he's getting enveloped in darkness. Yep. There's the same sort of thing where the beast is crawling on the ceiling and he's smashing lights as he goes. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, And she's in a cage. Uh, yeah, and she's in a cage, yeah. She's locked herself in a cage. And uh, now, unfortunately, for visual effect, we see him drop down and the lights at the far end of the hall are on so we can see his silhouette. And so she can easily see him. So destroying all the lights did absolutely nothing. So, I mean, unfortunately, in order to make it so we can see what's going on, it makes it to where Casey can see him and shoots him. And this is when we can see, no, he's actually getting shot. And through all these struggles, they mention it earlier, like Hedwig says, Dennis says you wear a lot of shirts, you know. She gets these another layer ripped off of her and she's wearing this like under spaghetti strap tank top thing. And she's shooting at him and he's getting knocked back and we can see that it's hit him and it's causing welts, but it's not breaking the skin. They said that he has rhinoceros skin. Yeah. Uh, Another reference to animals. And he grabs the bars and he's starting to pull them apart with all of his strength, which is incredible. When he notices for the first time that she's not you know, a lot of her skin is exposed and on her stomach and on some of her arms, she is all scarred up. Now, we don't know because it's not told to us. Is this the abuse from her uncle? Is this is she a cutter? We don't know. But obviously she has suffered. And he keys into that because he was eating these women. Oh, we didn't mention that he eats both of the young women. He eats them because they are pure and innocent and they have not known suffering. They don't deserve to live and he needs to consume them to become the beast. Because they will never reach their potential, as Dennis said. The only way to reach your potential is through suffering. Because that's why Kevin is the way he is, is because he suffers. And more and more suffering leads to this beast coming out. So that's how he unlocked his potential. That's what the beast believes. Unlocked his potential through suffering. And he sees that she has suffered. And that means that she is pure hearted. And he lets her live and he just leaves. Yeah, he says the broken are the more evolved. (laughs) You are different from the rest. Your heart is pure. Rejoice! (laughs) The broken are the more evolved. Rejoice! She collapses in the cage and wakes up the next morning to a man coming down here and being like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. 
and he sees her in the cage and he gets her out of there and he takes her up to security and he's like, you got to call the police or whatever. And the dude's like, oh, shit, this is the girl that was talking to me on the walkie talkie. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't see what actually ends up happening to this guy. And then we see all, you know, outside it's at a zoo. She gets walked through all these exhibits with the cats and um, she's sitting down in the police vehicle and she's like, and a police officer comes to her and says, hey, you know what? Your uncle's here. You can go now. And she just turns to the police officer and just has this like look in her eyes. And the police officer's like, did you hear me? You can, your uncle's here. You can go. And then it kind of closes up on her and then credits. And that's when we get the scene where it's in a diner. We have somebody saying, oh, they have a nickname for this person with multiple personalities. The, it's the horde. the horde. And then that's when the girls in the diner are like, that's funny. It has like a nickname. Like that reminds me of somebody else in Philadelphia. And that's when Bruce Willis's character says, yeah, it's Mr. Glass. Reports even indicate one of his personalities is an amalgam of the various animals in the Philadelphia Zoo where he worked. The press is already referring to the alleged attacker by a dark name leaked by a source close to the case. Because of his many personalities, he is being called the Horde. This is like that crazy guy in the wheelchair that they put away 15 years ago. And they gave him a funny name, too. What was it? Mr. Glass. And then that's the ultimate end of the movie where we get the tie into the Unbreakable Universe. I'm really excited. Uh, so am I. I'm really excited. So, lightning round. So, Dennis carries around a cloth with him all the time because he's OCD and he, because he's a germaphobe. It's what he uses to touch door handles and stuff like that. And it's this bright yellow cloth. And that made me ask, what does yellow signify? Hedwig wears yellow. Hedwig has a yellow jacket. There is a yellow flower in the perfect bathroom. Mm-hmm. Dennis mentions color coding when he talks about the the liquids, the cleaning liquids for the bathroom. But I couldn't for the life of me tell you what that means. There are some really nice uses of color throughout the movie, but I don't think it's really a metaphor for anything. And I'm kind Good. of I'm kind of bummed. I feel like there could have been some subtle messaging in there. Like maybe every time he was Dennis, there was some yellow. Shyamalan he used, thinks he he's smart he used because he uses sense. colors to mean yes. something. And so I was a little bit disappointed to find out that that didn't actually mean anything. I'm glad. As, as far as I can tell. Oh, Hedwig talks about how he has red socks. And then he mentions that he has blue socks. And there's a lot of references to color. I have blue socks. I have blue socks too. <laughs> <laughs> So after the dancing scene, like Chris said, she has kind of a dumbfounded look on her face because she wa- she's looking for the window. It's like tragedy. She's broken. But when he comes to her, he's like, what's wrong? She's like, wow. Yeah. And he's like. As if she's emotionally moved. And he's like, I know, right? <laughs> I love that scene. It could be really silly. I-, I love it. It's so good. I love it. It's so much better the second time. I'm telling you. When he's Patricia and he's leading her back to her cell, she's saying, in the sun, we will find our purpose. Then it's Dennis and he's explaining, you know, you will help us become what we are meant to become. And it felt very much like Red Dragon. 
Yeah. You know, you are going to witness a great becoming. Yes. And um, the sun, the light, which is what they use to control the body. And he goes, I hope that makes you feel calm. Yes. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. <laughs> yes. I, I draw a lot of parallels to Red Dragon and Manhunter with this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, this yeah. is his red dragon. I mean, you know, mother abuse. I mean, you could say that's in a lot of different things, but it is because of that that led to him the becoming personality. an animal. Yes. Uh-huh. I mean. A beast, a dragon. Yeah, no, totally. He very is. much stole his idea. Well, we don't know that that's the case, but it could very well be possible. <laughs> There's a theory that young Kevin and his mother are in Unbreakable. Oh, the mom that he passes by in the train station. It's a, they're at a stadium. Oh, fuck you. But, but yes, yes, he passes by and he senses that there's something going on here. This kid is a victim of abuse and he's going to do something, but he's on his way to confront a drug dealer. Uh, and so he kind of ignores that and it never, like, we never see that again. The theory is, is that those are Kevin and his mother. Now we got to watch Unbreakable just to know that. Just yes. see that scene. And, <laughs> and what is important to Kevin? What's the triggering place? Trains. That is also where Bruce Willis's character got his power in a train crash. whoop de doo Shyamalan! <laughs> whoop de doo Yes. I thought they did a really good job of getting a younger version of Casey that actually looks a lot like her, aside from the curly hair. Exactly. The hair is a big detractor. But I think it's pretty obvious that Casey straightens her hair, but over the course of days that this movie takes place, her hair wouldn't, you know, we'd she start to see it. perfect makeup throughout the movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is weird because he very specifically makes the other two girls look dirty and tired and and like sweaty and gross. Yes. But our main Casey girl, who probably, if in real life, if she was real, wouldn't probably wear makeup. Yes. She's looking perfect the whole time. You might recognize her from The Witch. She's a blonde in The Witch, but she's like the main character in I think the she's Witch. much prettier as a brunette. This is another movie that M. Night Shyamalan collaborated with Bloomhouse. And if you don't know Bloomhouse, they are the hot shit. In the horror universe right now, they're the ones that are kind of reviving the horror genre for modern day. They've done a lot of really, really good stuff. I think they did Insidious and The Conjuring, and they've done they've a lot of done fucking some shitty shit. ones. Right? Like they're just they, doing every horror movie right now. To use gun metaphors, they use the spray and pray approach. They the shotgun method. In know? fact, their fucking promo is a bunch of different, like typical. Right, a camera moving around a room in a floating chair. A and, girl yeah, with uh -huh. dark long hair. Like it, it they're they but, just want to capitalize on horror. <laughs> but they they know they really know how to make horror cool. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing. That's their key. Is in the nineties and the eighties, horror was really kind of silly. Nineties horror is bad. Right. And so 90s horror started getting good when it was when it became self-referential and then it fell back into a hole again when it lost that sort of self-awareness. Uh, 2000s just started doing all the torture porn. Right, exactly. So it's with Bloomhouse that that they started getting back into no horror is cool. Mm -hmm. And they have this really eye for the cool. And I think that's why horror is making this resurgence. And and they worked with M Night Shyamalan on this 
and The Visit, which are the best movie Shyamalan has made in a very long time. He made a lot of stinkers until he started working with Jason Bloom. I still like a lot of them. <laughs> I think we talked about this. We did. It, yeah, we sense. went through. If you if you listen to our Sixth Sense episode, we'll go through his entire oeuvre and talk about what we like and what we don't like. <laughs> and then James McAvoy plays Kevin. Who else is he famous for playing, Kelsey? James McAvoy? Yes. He's probably most famous for playing Professor X in the X-Men movies, the new class stuff, the first, first class. class. And I say the new class because it's the joke about Saved by the Bell, the new class. Anyway, Professor X has a son. Do you remember who Professor X's son is? Legion. Yes. Legion? Horde? Why is Legion called Legion? They don't really get into it in the show, but why is he called Legion? Uh, he has many personalities? He has multiple personalities, and each of those personalities has a different superpower. Yeah. See, but the show doesn't do that because the show can't say (laughs) X-Men. It's owned by Fox. They absolutely can. They're trying not to. Don't they? Because they want it to be a different sort of thing. They don't they don't want to tie it to any any particular universe of the X-Men, especially since there's so much churn going on there that they don't want to uh, like, tie it into that. Legion is a great show. If you're not watching it, you should. Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> We're a little behind on it. Shush. We're, like, three episodes behind. We really need to catch up. And then, finally, I, I told you I was I, – I had kept track of the things that I didn't like about this movie the first time I saw it. And then I also wrote down when – oh, the movie explains it. So, first off, why doesn't he spray her when he gets into the car? He cleans up and takes off the mask and everything, and he's very particular about everything. And then I wrote, I get that he wasn't planning on her, assuming he had this target planned. Oh, wait, he had two beds prepared. Hedwig says Dennis follows the girl for four days. Okay, that's explained. But dude, come on. She's right there. And I'm like, oh, but he has, he's he's very particular and meticulous, and he's expecting things to work out a certain way. And so when they don't work out that way, he's caught by surprise. Okay, it's I get still that. silly. Hedwig sounds too young for nine. Oh, but he has a different mental condition from all the others. Just because they're in the same body with the same brain doesn't mean that their brains don't operate differently. Well, there's that explained. I get that DID patients can change their physiology, and I even accept that he has super strength. But climbing on walls, come on. How is that supposed to work? Oh, in the third visit to the doctor, she describes the powers, including the wall climbing. Son of a bitch. How this beast can crawl on walls like the best rock climbers, using the slightest friction and imperfections to hold his body close to seemingly sheer surfaces. How his skin is thick and tough like the hide of a rhinoceros. Do you really believe the stories about the beast? But there are two things that... I feel aren't really very well explained. For instance, they don't tie the suffering to anything other than Casey's experiences. They don't explain why suffering is, makes you more evolved. But through our conversation here on this podcast, we end up talking about how that's what led Kevin to have split personalities. That's what led to the creation of the beast. And so of course they see that suffering leads to evolution. There's that answered. The one thing That I just did not have an answer for. Marsha tries to break out 
of the closet using a hanger. And with the door jam in place oh. and the hanger bent, that would be impossible. She doesn't get out anyway, so it doesn't fucking matter. But it bothers me. <laughs> yeah, I like I, mean, I I don't think I saw I don't think I realized it in the theater because I was sitting there and I was just like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. How the fuck did she do that? Right. I didn't. I Yeah, I don't think I got it in the movie theater, but I definitely got it this time. And I said it, and then Chris was like, I'm literally writing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, God, we have talked for a very long time about this movie. Sorry if this episode is long. I was going to say it's time for a supernatural check-in. Carry on my But we are so out of time. <laughs> we'll talk about it in the next episode. We'll try to remember the episodes that we've watched since the last time we gave an update. Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 90. 76. What? And a 62 on Metacritic. The consensus is Split serves as a dramatic tour de force for James McAvoy in multiple roles and finds writer-director M. Night Shyamalan returning resoundingly to thrilling form. Yeah. But... <laughs> a, good, a good quarter of the reviews are negative. Underrated, I take it? Can you tell me why? Like, what they didn't like about it? I would just be going I know, through. I know what I didn't like about it. But you wouldn't walk away with a negative review of the film. Right, and I wouldn't imagine that a lot of people feel the same way that I do. Let's take a look at some of the negative reviews. From Salon, Matthew Raza, Split takes a step in this direction by positing that mental sickness might not always be an actual illness, but then takes two steps back by exploiting moviegoers' fears that people with unusual mental conditions can be unpredictably violent. I don't think that's what the movie is saying at all. I think that the movie does an admirable, maybe not accurate, but an admirable job of representing somebody that has this very controversial Disorder that can't be in a very balanced light. Like it. Uh, from the Associated Press, Lindsay Barr split isn't a disaster. It's just all over the place and not nearly as effective as it should be for something with such a good premise and performances. So they recognize the premise is cool. James McAvoy's great, but ultimately it just doesn't come together. I think they're saying that the overall quality of the film isn't very good. This is from. The Chicago Reader, J.R. Jones, three teenage girls are held captive in a grimy building somewhere by a madman with 23 personalities, but at least they aren't trapped in a theater watching this exercise in tedium from vaunted master of surprise M. Night Shyamalan. I don't think that there was a big twist in this There's movie. no twist. Right. I mean, we get to see that the beast does exist, but I don't think that's a twist because they've been talking him up this entire time. Yeah. I guess the, the fact that she is was abused, but they drop that throughout the movie. I guess maybe that's what saves her. But like, I don't think that's any more twisty than any normal movie. Yeah, this is not a twist movie. I was actually, I was proud of him. I was proud of him so for was not I. having to put in a twist. This is Rex Reed from the New York Observer. I'm not really a big fan of Rex Reed's, but he says, this is a filmmaker with almost no real talent for coherence, originality, or purpose, and in spite of his insistence on audience secrecy, his overly contrived plots are easy to figure out before the beginning of the second reel. Now, I'm sorry, but dropping a reference into the second reel, you're a pretentious fuckhead, Rex Reed. You know, oh, I know about reels. Movies are digital now, there aren't any reels. <laughs> uh, number one. 
number two, originality is a concern. We talked about Red Dragon. We talked about Legion. Yeah, we talked about all these other references. Freaking... He's pulling it from the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, everybody But does. I think the premise is really good and the execution is really good. He does mention coherence, which is the problem that Lindsay Barr at the Associated Press has. It's all over the place. But I think Rex, Rex Reed is just fucking pretentious. So These are bizarre. Like, this is not what I expected. But it's only a quarter. I mean, basically, they're all saying that it's just not effective at what it does. Not that it's a bad premise. Not that the acting's bad. It's just the movie overall isn't that effective. It's kind of all over the place. I don't think it is all over the place. I think it's very tense. Yeah. I think it's a well-made movie. That said, what would you give it? 85. I was going to go for 88. I gave Red Dragon and Manhunter an 85, if I remember correctly. I like this a little bit better... I mean, I like the atmosphere of both of those movies a little bit more than I like in this one, but I thought this this movie was a lot more clever. I just can't stand the premise. Yeah, you can't stand the things that had to happen because we talk, we've talked about this before. Kelsey really doesn't like it when the premise is predicated on somebody making bad decisions. It's like her immediate turnoff switch. And in spite of that, she's giving this movie an 85. That should tell you how much she liked it. Yeah, I mean... James McAvoy fucking deserved at least a fucking Oscar nod. Yeah, there's no way, no way in hell he would win for it. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. When it's described in the in the consensus as a tour de force, it really is. This like, is the performance of he got his no career. recognition for it. <laughs> yeah, and he uh-huh. did. I can't think of a, a good word because I feel like I use adjectives all the time, like outstanding and phenomenal, and just none of them. It was quite hit it. This it was is his really compelling. Yeah. Really, really compelling. And I cannot wait for the next one. And I so hope he doesn't disappoint me. Yeah. And I don't think he will. But we'll see. We'll see when that one comes out, which is uh, it's it's the movie's called Mr. Glass. And I think it's either coming out at the end of this year or next year. It's coming out very soon. All right. That was 2016's split. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? In honor of Mother's Day, <laughs> we are watching the 1963 Joan Classic. Crawford movie, Straight Jacket. Oh, Jesus. And Mama. Oh, Mama. Good. I would like to see that movie again. I need to. I do not remember. I remember liking it, but under protest. So we'll see how it goes the second time around. All right. Next week, Straight Jacket and Mama. Until then, you can reach us at podcemetery.com, where you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we've ever had on the show. You can leave a comment, share your thoughts on the movies, or recommend one or two for us to cover in a future episode. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery. I oftentimes add comments that we think of after the mics are off, which I did recently for the birds. We talk a little bit more uh, in there about Hitchcock's relationship to Tippi Hedren and how troubling that is. Also, Kelsey will sometimes get trashed and live tweet a random horror movie, which hasn't happened in a while. So we need to make sure that that happens soon. Also, don't forget, please, to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. We really, really appreciate you listening. Absolutely. We see our coverage going up gradually over time, and it makes us, like, super happy. So thank you guys for listening in, 
and please share it with friends, talk about it on social media, rate and review, do all that stuff. We would really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, any parting wisdom to share with the audience? Only through pain can you achieve your greatness. The impure are the untouched, the unburned, the unslain. Those who have not been torn have no value in themselves and no place in this world. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smoldings and fangs that are picking up bones I also like just this is just a side thing. I might put this after the after the music, but there is that line that we briefly touched on, but we didn't make the connection between these two films, Dance Macabre and Split. We talk about how it's split personalities. DID is the linking between these two, but there is that line about dancers and what they put themselves through that Anthony has, that is, tortured people do things in this world no one understands. I said that. I know, you said that when we talked about the movie. I'm saying that's a link back to Split. Where I said that when I said it. I said this would lead us into the next one, and you were like, we're not there yet. I was like... Right. Well, I'm going to edit that out anyway, so it's not going to happen, but... (laughs) But I'm, I I meant like we're not ready to segue into the next movie yet. But you were just like, keep that in your. That's exactly yeah, what I, I was know. doing. I, which is why I realized that, which is why I was going to edit out what I said. And now here it is after the music. It's coming out for everyone to see. I said something stupid and then I edited it out and to I'm make smart. myself look better. And Kelsey's very smart. <laughs> I didn't realize that until we were looking for quotes. And I saw this as one of the quotes from the movie. And I'm like, oh, snap. That's just like in Split. Kelsey thought of it before me. <laughs> Here you get your credit only for the people that hang around after the music. <laughs> Interesting. I was going to go into other things, but um, I won't hear. I'll cut that out. And Canon Films reduced, uh, reduced maybe. The Happy Hooker. <laughs> The happy hooker goes to Washington? No way. Cheerleaders beach party? Gas pump girls. Have I... I've, I've, I've won by attrition, haven't I? <laughs> what does that mean? It means I've just worn you down. <laughs> Dr. Fletcher. Fletcher. Do you think she's named after Murder, She Wrote? I have no idea. Jessica Fletcher? Anyway, continue. <laughs> Fuck you no, right I now. No, I love the fifth Okay, film. okay, I was going to say. <laughs> I was thinking about how everybody loves Leon the Professional, and I think it's oh, just okay. Just today, just today, somebody was like, who is that? Because I have a bunch of windows open on my computer. Who is that on your background? And I moved the window, and he's like, oh, it's the professional. <laughs> Jean Renault. You have the professionals, your background? I have uh, several backgrounds that cycle through. Every 15 minutes or so, they change. And that's a shot of 
Leon walking with uh, Natalie Portman yeah. down the street. I love that movie. Yeah. Everyone! Yeah. Satan's pretty cool. Satan's pretty cool. Satan's pretty cool. God, am I going to have to edit that in again? <laughs> I wonder, like, okay, so the the two times that I've used that so far, I put it in the sources. I wonder if anyone's actually gone there and has any idea what we're talking about when we say Satan's pretty cool. <laughs> That is the year and day that Scotland voted whether or not they were going to secede from the UK. And... (laughs) Is that a coincidence? James McAvoy is Scottish. (laughs) It's just... I don't know if it's a coincidence or intentional. It doesn't mean anything other than we're talking about a split. Okay. He eats both of the little girls. Little girls? God damn it. He eats both of the young women. Whoop-de-doo, Shyamalan. <laughs> Whoop-de-doo. 